welcome back to the Film Hole Podcast. I'm Trevor. And I'm Raul. And I'm uh, I'm Justin. I'm the guest today. <laughs> I'm a filmmaker. And I'm a scientist. And I'm what a are writer. you, Justin? A writer? Not going to say it again. All right. <laughs> Is that like your primary like identifier for you? Like if you no, but it's someone. the it's the easiest way to to describe it. I once told a guy what I did, and he said, "Well, that must involve a lot of reading." I said, "I'm a copywriter." And he said, "That must involve a lot of reading." And it took me until the next day to realize what he, he probably assumed I was in law of some sort. Yeah, it's like, it, I guess, man. Yeah, I write and it's I mostly read. writing though. Yeah, copying <laughs> too. Every week we watch a movie, and then we get together and talk about it. And this week we watched kind of two, two movies. movies we watched a uh, synecdoche new york twice in succession uh individually and then we also all independently watched i'm thinking of ending things and that's just because it you know it just came out and i think it was a moment in time where everybody was watching i'm thinking yeah. of ending things because netflix was just like this is a movie we want everybody to watch now okay. and when netflix dictates we obey um this is the last thing i'm going to say about this because I'd like to set up the structure of the podcast, but I feel like they don't care as much about, like, directors. Like, if you like this director, maybe you'll like this director. It's all just, it, it seems like it's all kind of smashed together. Like, you like genre movies? Here's more genre movies. You yeah, like, yeah. You like movies about crime? Here's more movies about crime. It's just, like, very... Yeah. It's it's like psychographics, right? That, I think that's what the algorithm is. Is it's like hacking into our brains rather than taking the simple classifications like director or romance. It's like dark romance with a, you know, I don't know, Italian guy as a lead. Like it's it's shit like that. It's very strange. Yeah. Even the categories are like phrased in ways like that, which are really bizarre. But mm-hmm. uh, and can. I'll say one more thing about this because I don't want to destructure the podcast too much. But a lot of this like algorithmic uh, like content curation that's done by the big streaming platforms is just so impersonal, and it shows. Mm-hmm. Like commercials aren't even interesting to look at anymore. They don't even curate their commercials. It's just like random shit being piped to our eyeballs, mm-hmm. and it's just not fun anymore. Totally agreed. I say we keep destructuring the podcast because what other director would be more appropriate than Charlie Kaufman for as far as like deconstructed deconstructed uh, film hole yeah yeah this is now the film hill film Uh, hole colon deconstructed uh sub colon Charlie Kaufman episode (laughs) we we watched both these movies at least one of them multiple times and we could just be here for hours if we try to talk about both in really like substantive ways so i think maybe the best approach is lean heavily into synecdoche because that one just feels like more rich with things to talk about and then maybe uh we can interweave i'm thinking of ending things throughout and then if at one point we kind of dry up the well on synecdoche and we just want to talk like more about i'm thinking of ending things at the end that can just be like a sidecar topic to everything else sound good yeah I can see that happening because I think that the first discussion is probably going to get pretty tedious after a while after we like start like delving into like recursive metaphors that just keep folding in on each other. Yeah. We might just give up and, and say I'm thinking of ending things now for good and just 
jumping off my two-story balcony. I'm thinking of ending things as a response to Synecdoche, to the watching experience of Synecdoche. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So do you want to start a little bit just by like talking a little bit about the director and maybe discussing some of the other stuff that we've seen of his? Sure. The director is not a regular director. He's a screenwriter most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I really understand the distinction between that. Like, why does it matter that his like most famous movies, he's not the director of, he's just the writer? Well, let's ask a writer. Justin, that's you. <laughs> uh, right. I'm sorry. You should have said copywriter. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how much it matters. I would say that Trevor and I have spoken about this uh, briefly the two movies that he's directed, I guess he co-directed Anomalisa, but that's appropriately enough an anomaly. <laughs> These two movies are quite different, like stylistically from, if not thematically, from his written efforts. So I would say those have much more of a split, like authorial voice, whereas these are pure, you know, black tar heroine, uh, Charlie Kaufman, for better mm-hmm. or for worse. I was just going to ask if uh, Raul, if you had seen his earlier uh, movies. The ones so I've seen it, Eternal Sunshine being Joel Malkovich is a, a favorite of mine. I saw it recently. I showed it to Stacy. We thought it was a laugh riot a whole time through. A standout funniest scene of that movie. He's like, uh, tell me what these letters are. Uh, sir, that's uh, that is not a letter there. Damn, you're good. Yeah, Nothing gets by you. <laughs> so I've seen that. I've seen Anna Lisa. I, I guess I've seen all his directorial stuff now. Yeah, he co-directed with Duke Johnson. I haven't seen Human... Is it Human Nature, I think, is the his first one that. with Michelle Gondry? I haven't seen that. I don't think it's as highly regarded as the subsequent movies. But yeah, uh, he's super funny, which we can talk about later when we get into Synecdoche. But if we're talking about his background, I know he has a background in writing sitcoms. And it's oh, really? clear. Yeah, it's clear that he does because he's hilarious. It's interesting because like Synecdoche and like I'm thinking of ending things. I wish there was a a better shorthand way to refer to that movie. I would also like that. Ending things. I'm thinking. (laughs) Oh, that's the movie you want a shorthand? (laughs) (laughs) I want a shorthand, the one I can't pronounce. But I think both movies are, are really funny, like in their own ways. Probably less so I'm thinking of ending things, but... They're not like they're not the same type of funny as those other movies that we were talking about. They're yeah, they're a little bit like more tongue in cheek or uh, less obvious. So, is that like because he's the director? Because the ones that he's directed, he's also written, right? So it's mm-hmm. like pure him. And is it because like when he's fully in charge, like his demons come out more than than his funny side? <laughs> That's what it seems like to me. Like, if he was given the realms of, you know, how the movie is directed and put together, that he would take it in a darker direction and sort of, like, you know, left to his own devices, like, that's kind of what the movie becomes. It's just, like, a bummer, though, you know? When Justin was talking about how, you know, he's right, he wrote sitcoms and he's, like, obviously, like, a really funny guy, but then you watch his, like, real like, pure reflection of him work, and then you also, like, listen to his interviews, he's just kind of, like, a like it seems like a real bummer of a dude to be around oh really yeah i haven't seen too much of his like interviews so i can't speak too much about his personality there's this great interview that i saw um 
I think he's promoting Anomalisa. He's talking about how he doesn't like the Oscars. He's saying, like, I hate the Oscars. And the interviewer's like, well, well why? And he's like, well, I don't like to lose. And I don't like the whole construction of it, the self-congratulations. So he simultaneously, like, admits to <laughs> not liking that he's losing the award that he obviously wants, but then, like, proceeds to break down the legitimacy of the award at all. It's like, <laughs> so, well, I don't like just, it when I lose to obviously inferior movies and two i don't like the oscars right <laughs> that's my two-point plan for why i don't right. like the oscars i don't want to be a part of your stupid your stupid club for crappy jerks yeah that's i think he's also one of these guys who really 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 hates movie critics to the point where his late his new novel it's his first novel is um is inspired by his hatred for critics and I won't mm-hmm. say any more because I don't know any more about it. It's called Ant Kind, but I do know that's the <laughs> sort of brief description of it is it's born out of his hatred for critics. Hmm. This is the guy that directed these these movies and wrote them. It's interesting that adaptation is not directed by him for like a few reasons because he's the main character <laughs> or sort of a, a version of him is the main character. I think creatively maybe that movie is more of a reflection of and maybe you could say that about like any of the movies that he's written we were talking about this earlier how like how do you say like what movie is a is a who movie because spike jones is like no slack of a director but just because like charlie kaufman is like on the list and he's the screenwriter like is this a Spike Jones movie? Is this a, or is this a Charlie Kaufman movie and, and why? Yeah, I would say the adaptation is a Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman movie, if we're being technical about it. <laughs> we're not here to talk about adaptation, but really quick, what do you, what do you make of the whole, is it just the surface level, like the dumb, the dumb part of like Charlie Kaufman manifested as a twin brother? I have no idea. I'm sure he's spoken on this, so I can't say for sure because I don't know. I imagine he would he would give some self-effacing answer like that where it's it's his yeah, his dumb psyche, his dumb the dumb part of his psyche or the, you know, impulsive id because yeah. it's a dumb character but it's also a character that like gets everything he wants and is kind of happy, you know? He's like an ignoramus, but he's happy. Uh-huh. And he and Charlie Kaufman probably resents people that are like that, so I imagine it's some sort of inner turmoil yeah manifest his brother is like uh blissful blissfully ignorant but also just like plays the hollywood game <laughs> right so, yeah why it gets a movie made right <laughs> right yeah just like excels a lot faster than the real charlie uh-huh. that's actually an interesting mechanic that i just kind of caught on to with synecdoche like the character projecting like different idealized parts of himself onto different people or different characters like the characters in himself in his movies like become very splintered for uh, different reasons and like they become these sort of one-dimensional versions of uh different s- parts of what i assume is just charlie kaufman i think like every main character every main character is charlie kaufman when i'm watching those movies now maybe that's an oversimplification but with this movie synecdoche I'll start off by saying there's a lot of weird things that happen in it, like in I'm thinking of ending things, but on rewatching it this afternoon, partially because I was a lot more sober, it's like 
not as weird and surreal as I thought it was. You know what I'm saying? It's like the whole world of like the play like takes place in like it has different rules, but it is this like believable world where there are real things that are actually happening and there's like a narrative that is actually moving forward. But it certainly is more unrealistic than like I'm thinking of ending things because kind of like this harkens back, I think, to our Mahal and Drive discussion of like whether the narrative can or not fit within some like materialist worldview like am i Mm -hmm. looking at something that can be explained away by like sleeping or a dream sequence or is it something that am i looking at something that's actually just abstract on the screen i'm thinking of ending things you know can ultimately be chalked up to just imagination and you know the the, the innards of a mind yeah that kind of stuff but this one i i kind of like when i'm looking at it i just think i'm seeing basically a a moving metaphor i think that to a degree there are instances of like this is just m- metaphor manifesting on screen but like uh-huh. upon watching it this time i was like oh, okay like i can actually follow this there's actually like like real tactile things happening like moving the story from scene to mm-hmm. scene and sure, like sure. the the first time when you watch all of like the plays and plays and plays. I think I get kind of lost in it. None, none of this seems to make sense or be real anymore. And so I just checked out. Oh, no, I, I got you. Those scenes in particular, for sure, they can either lose you, but you can actually they exist within like the real world of the movie. They're yes. not like weird things. They break the fourth wall a lot, like when mm. they're breaking the characters that they're playing and then just like talking to the main actor, the main character of the movie but it is understandable yeah Yeah. i would say that's trevor what you're describing is probably the one of the bigger differences between the two movies uh synecdoche and ending things which is what i'll propose (laughs) we call it because i think ending things is almost purely like it's of the mind it's in the mind and it doesn't really seem to exist in a real world it's just this really slippery reality whereas synecdoche even though they're is super absurdist points like you know the the burning house there it does still feel like it takes place in the real world if there are unreal things happening in the real world you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i want to ask about the movie real quick is i'm th- i'm thinking which is what i'm going to refer to it as <laughs> i'm going to propose of, <laughs> of <laughs> thinking of of ending they're all good but is that his mm. only movie that he has adapted from a book before well, this is where it gets tricky because adaptation is not technically an adaptation of a book, but it is about his attempt, his real life attempt to adapt a book. We're, we're talking can, about ending things though, right? Yeah, we are. Things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, that is a novel. And I think it's the only like straight adaptation he's done. He's tried adapting things before. Because I'm tripped up by like the Charlie Kaufman as a screenwriter versus director, just because like I'm not familiar enough what the division of labor is when you're making a movie so it's hard to tell like well what does a screenwriter bring to the table is it just creating the story is he just a great creator of stories but for ending things that's an already existing story so then is he just bringing his director's hat and how the story is told and mood setting and all of that i think he can craft especially with this movie is like this slowly like imploding story really well and i think it takes skill as a writer speaking as a non-writer to do something like that 
And like based on the type of guy I think Charlie Kaufman is, is I think that he's creatively involved in his non-directorial movies to whatever degree I couldn't say. But I also think he just, I don't think he likes people. And like a director is like a very like charismatic leading people kind of role. And so mm. I don't, I think that he intentionally like stays away from that, that role. He likes the craft, but he doesn't like the social component as much as others. Right. That's just right. a theory. Yeah, I guess this is, this brings up a point. I've been hesitant to really dive into uh, further like analysis of unthinking of ending things or theories or anything because I plan to read the book. I haven't read it. So anything mm-hmm. I say tonight is with that caveat that I haven't read the book. Um, mm-hmm. and I may be misunderstanding things that are clear in the book or getting something totally wrong. I read as much as I could about what the plot of the real book was just cause I was trying to understand the movie. Don't you think the book's ruined now that we know like the, well, I'll save it, but we kind of like know what happened. Just say it. This is this is a this is a spoiler podcast here. Spoiler alert! <laughs> if you've subscribed to this podcast, you're gonna get spoilers. Yeah. But like, I heard the book the is ending... great. I, I'm looking forward to reading it just because of what I've heard about it. So so I read this. the The movie itself was actually kind of hard to piece together, even by the end of it. But apparently, like, the reality of it is that the Jake was that old man janitor, and the whole thing mm-hmm. was projection, imagination, something you know yeah. inner turmoil and that he killed himself at the end and so the title of the movie is in reference to his own suicide i guess i missed the the way in which he killed himself um it's not it's not clear in the book it's clear crystal clear but in the movie they did kind of a weird visual metaphor with the dancing and all that stuff mm-hmm. okay but what you see in the movie to support that is the fact that by the end when we see him in his car and he's like freezing and he takes off all his clothing, mm-hmm. apparently that's a sign of hypothermia. And I think by that point, uh... that's that's like he's on his way out at that point. Whether he gets out of the car at all and is talking to that pick might just be like Got him it. ascending to the other world. Mm-hmm. What I really enjoy about that movie is um, how the perspective of the character, like the main character in quotes, is all like screwed up. Like for most of it, where uh-huh. it's the, it's from her perspective, and then it's like from Jake's perspective, but it's all from Jake's perspective, and so that makes you wonder like who the the redheaded girl even is, or like what she is, if like uh-huh. she truly, if she's just like this imagined apparition or like memory, like why does she have like a consciousness that we can hear? What I think the fact that she is the main character of the story. Like, I know it's about Jake, but she is the main character. We're listening to her thoughts and the mm-hmm. camera's on her most of the time. I think that was great because that really threw me off of trying to figure it out. I have a theory about this that I think is is great. Like, I said something earlier about how, like, characters, like, splinter. And, like, maybe that's just, you know, a version of, of him that's separate from other consciousnesses. But what I like more is... Th- this cosmic dimensional thing I came up with, which was like, if you imagine like another reality that has these other characters. So like the world that Jake and and Lucy are in for most of the movie, Mm -hmm. that strictly by the act of imagining that, that like the universe is infinite and there are like infinite number of realities. So it's likely that what you imagine is like actually true. And so this, uh, this redheaded girl is like slowly coming to the realization that she doesn't actually exist that she's actually just this 
manifested version of some ideal woman in like a janitor's brain but is nevertheless fully conscious like a, a fully like real thing but you just realize that you live in the mind of someone else love it yeah that's pretty terrifying <laughs> the way i thought about it I just was watching the beginning of it again. So I think it's like Jake in his own mind. Uh, That woman is a mental device by which he can think of himself in the third person. The Mm -hmm. beginning of the movie starts out with her saying, I'm thinking of ending things with Jake. He is Jake. And so that's his like mental metaphor for saying he wants to end his life. And Mm -hmm. she's like, things aren't like going so well. I don't think I I forget exactly what she says, but I I, I would highly recommend watching the movie again. I'm planning on doing so pretty soon Mm -hmm. just to interpret everything that she says. And like in terms of that, it's it's his mind taking uh, trying to take an objective look at himself and trying to come make a decision about something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I can't wait to rewatch it because I it's funny. I have a slightly different. I'm glad we all have different interpretations of this movie. I think. Uh, I think she is a girl that he met in a bar one night, but he didn't work up the courage or he screwed up the interaction or something where they didn't connect. And the rest of his life is spent sort of relitigating what could have been. And he's seeing all the different realities of how she could have interpolated in his life. Yeah, I think the key to that is in like the hallway when like the girl is like talking to like real janitor jake yeah she says something like oh it's this random like well thousands of of interactions that i've had and like it didn't mean anything to me and it was so long ago that like that's like the real story like what she's saying that was a great i just love that as as far as a plot twist delivery as such a great subtle plot twist delivery because mm-hmm. even up to that point, I was still, I, I would not have been able to even tell you as a theory that like she was not real and that a lot of this was made up. I still thought she was the main character of the story, but it got, when it got to that part, I'm like, why is she saying that? That doesn't, uh, that's not consistent with the story from earlier. And then Having, it kind of slowly sank in somewhere. Yeah, totally. Having her as like the main character through which you see the movie, like, is a great. Uh, bluff for like yeah, who, yeah who she actually is yeah i think so but this is like uh, i think connected to synecdoche like this theme but just in a less like metaphysical way it's, yeah what they been specifically but characters or like different versions or different parts of a character manifesting in and multiple people and then like mm. criticizing one another absolutely so it's a, it's a movie about this man Caden Cotard, who is a playwright married to an artist, uh, has a child. And it's a basically a movie that progresses through like the entirety of his life as he loses love, gains it occasionally, momentarily, loses it again. All the while he's like putting on, I guess, the, the main device to follow through the movie is he's putting on this like mega play that's supposed to be his life's work because he just won a, a MacArthur grant and has all financial freedom to do so and so it's a movie that that really it's hard to describe but it just weaves through a lot of different human themes love loss death life you know how to live all those things throughout it's very heady maybe that's a very good way to put it yeah the play thing like it's out of control really quickly like just maybe just uh the best way to describe the complexity that we reach is that he's making a play about his own life that has at least two layers of actors 
playing different versions of himself and Mm -hmm. themselves right so he has an actor playing him and then he had to hire another actor to play the man that is playing him because of course now the actor playing him is a part of his life and therefore must be folded into the play I, i love you know we were talking about how this movie is a lot more tactile than i'm thinking of ending things the one thing that like dismisses this movie from reality, I think, is just everyone's everyone involved in this movie's inability to say like what are we doing? Like how ridiculous is this? <laughs> <laughs> At right. no point does the absurdity of the play sort of like closing in on itself infinitely. Yeah. Does does that bother anybody? Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think the thing that bothered me most list this time around watching it was so a MacArthur grant is isn't that like a million dollars? Help me out with this, Raul, because they made it seem like you have infinite money. Oh, I have no idea. I mean, it's not infinite money. It's just the cheat code. What's the number, (laughs) Justin? Do you know? I could have sworn it's like a million dollars. Like I thought it was something really like pat like that i could be wrong it, it's but. a good reward but it's not something like a large corporation can like drop a million dollars down a well and not give a shit exactly it's mm-hmm. not which it I certainly think doesn't so- scale up to the play that he puts on which by the end it's almost like implied that his play starts encompassing <laughs> all of new york city if not further right because he just right. keeps building is- larger and larger warehouses is that what happens i thought that they were getting smaller or did, are they getting actually bigger I think bigger. I think his thing okay. about his character is like ambition, bigger and bigger. He says early on, like to Adele, he's like, "Why do I always have to make things so complicated?" And she's like, "That's just what you do." So he, he's a man whose ambition knows no bound. See, I'm curious about that because I I was under the impression that it was getting smaller and smaller, and that smaller he smaller? would ven- he would venture out into outside the warehouse. That was when he would go into Adele's apartment. I assumed mm-hmm. uh-huh. Adele didn't live in the warehouse, but also like, again, this movie doesn't exist in a reality that we live in. So maybe she just lives in the warehouse in this metaphor. I don't know, but it's, I think the fact that it's unclear is the point. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I'm the, open there's to like that. a blurring of the line, I guess. Just based on like the physical evidence, it seems like, you know, when he first sees the warehouse that it is certainly like large enough to like contain like a few city blocks which is what he ends up building by the end. Right, right. So what I think happened, like what I'm saying is that that's the original warehouse is huge. It's like a huge airplane hangar, can contain a small city within it, but that by the end of the movie, after like 30 or 40 years or whatever, they at some point zoned all the rights to like the entire city of Manhattan or something and (laughs) built a secondary warehouse around it. Because there's one shot in particular where it does show the two but you're saying it could be smaller i didn't consider that actually well they do have they do have you know warehouse number two warehouse number three and he gets to the map and he like lifts up the the little layers which is a hilarious gag (laughs) yeah Yeah. i'll say this in discussing like the apartment so like by the end he's like living in the closet like adele's closet um but that is like the warehouse version of the apartment even though presumably earlier you know presuming that there was a real adele warehouse in the real new york city he was visiting that one but yet found himself in the fake one by the end of it 
but we never see her. So, I mean, who knows what it, what's supposed to be real. Um, for all we know that the first one that he goes to initially is, mm-hmm. is not actually hers. I don't know, because previous to that, she was living in Berlin. And that's all we knew her to yeah, that's, right. that's one thing in. that like tripped me up this time around. I was like, wait, wasn't she in Germany? Like, why is there? Why does she have an apartment that she's like recently been in in New York? Yep. Well, Sammy, the only line that explains that is when Sammy told Caden about the apartment and also the art show that she had going on in the city. And so Sammy oh. gave Caden the address of okay. this place. Yeah, so I guess that's what it was. Yeah, I miss the fact that the art show was in New York. I love the fact that you never see her in that part of the movie. Like, they, they made a point the first time that he goes in to show that the uh, shower is running when he walks in the first time. There's a cup of coffee on the table, and it is steaming. Mm-hmm. And the place looks very lived in. It's like, it's it's almost like it, like she's a ghost. Like, she's obviously, like, using this space as much as a human could utilize a space. Yet yeah. she's not there. She just, like, echoes through the walls. Yeah, I love the fact that she's not in, uh, you know, two thirds of the movie. Yeah. She's a very pivotal character, and and her character, uh, is very big in the story. Mm-hmm. One of the most memorable characters, but you don't see her face for most of it. She's a structuring absence, I think, is what a writer would call that. Oh. But yeah, it's it's uh, like that. almost to like an uh, an oppressive degree. She is a presence in the movie, right? Like. She's kind of right. the MacGuffin that moves the movie forward because he's the one, or she's the one that sort of devastated his whole thing. Okay, I've got a bullet point in here that's just called uh, progression of weird stuff. <laughs> Great progression of weird stuff. The, here's the thing. I, like I said earlier, thought this movie was a lot more like uh, surreal than it ended up being. And so, like, I expected this bullet to be very long. Like, things that were clearly, like, outside of reality. I expected to, like, write a lot of that stuff down. And I didn't get very far, honestly. Or at least, like, not with, like, notable things. So, I've only yeah. got a few. what do you got on there? only got a few in here. Uh, Hazel's uh, house that's on fire. That's, like, mm-hmm. exhibit A. That's also the first, like, weird thing that you see in the whole movie. It's yeah. base in my opinion, it's basically a normal movie up until that point. Mm-hmm. Like, everything is, like, pretty easy to follow, and nothing gets super strange until the firehouse. Um, And then after that, you see the cartoon Dwight Schrute that's supposed to be him on the TV. (laughs) Right. And then there's a a part where he's watching that cartoon, and you actually see what I think are, like, later scenes from the movie. He's, like, it's him, like, walking through the smoke at the end. So it's like a vision towards his of his own death. And then you've got the drug commercial that happens in that same scene. And he's just in the commercial. And then the some of the stuff with like the therapist uh, and the book and like him meeting her on the plane. Yeah. What about the Olive's diary? Like the fact that he could continue reading the entries in the diary despite the fact that she yeah. had been gone. Yeah. I guess there's stuff like that that's just like more subtle like he he's also like reading a magazine that has her in it like as a child and like the uh Claire's like tattoo which is so funny. You guys remember that part? <laughs> Full <laughs> Satan back tattoo. Oh that. Yeah, no that was so funny. Well, I've never seen Kaden, that before. Everybody has tattoos. <laughs> How have you not seen that? 
<laughs> That's like a laugh out loud for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievably funny. Laugh out louds are like LO, true LOLs are sort of few and far between for me these days. And this movie elicited more LOLs <laughs> than I think <laughs> most any movie has recently. Like it's yeah, it's great. a truly, truly funny movie. And I think it's probably because it's they're juxtaposed against these really, really just soul demolishing scenes and ideas. Uh-huh. Uh, these I think in they the laughs stand in sharp relief. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. They were quite effective. It somehow can take that like comedy equals tragedy plus time formula and like applies it to itself in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is that totally. like idiom brought to life. I think that I think that equation is even more funky in this movie though because uh, I think the weirdest part of the movie is time itself. Like time just doesn't even exist in this movie. It's so, it's not even, I wouldn't even call it non-linear. It's just like, there's no line. Yeah, I love that. It starts pretty yeah. early. It does start early, yeah. It, when when Olive is in the car and she's like, um, is it Tuesday today? And then Adele's like, no, it's Friday, honey. And like yeah. already, like at that point, it's it's totally believable. It's a child, right? They don't know what date of the week it is. But that same thing happens throughout the movie and the periods of time just get bigger and bigger yeah and like the most the profound ca- one is when olive leaves and she's like it's only been three weeks and then hazel is like it's been a year uh-huh. i'm gonna get you a calendar and then he when he goes to germany he's like she's a four-year-old and what's her face the other the other woman is like she's 11 now yeah it's like Maria. completely like different perceptions of time between those two characters yeah. I, d- I don't know i don't know about you guys but to me that's like that's truly frightening uh concept so it reminds mm-hmm. me of this goosebumps episode that haunted me as a kid and it was about these two kids that went to england with their parents and they go mm-hmm. like on a tour and then they come back from the tour to the hotel and their parents are not at the room they go to the front desk. There's no evidence of the parents having ever been there. And the kids can't even remember what their own names are. And I remember Whoa. as a kid, that was like, that was true terror to me. And I think it's the same feeling where you're so disconnected from reality that like you need those footholds like time, you know, basic uh-huh. footholds like time. And they just don't exist in this movie. So yeah. to go, he goes to Germany and he's like, she's four and she says she's almost 11. That's like scary to me. I don't know. Yeah, well, it, it is scary. It's, still, it's very. It's a, it, it does catch you complete. It's a gut punch when those scenes happen. Yeah. At least the first time I saw oh. them, to be that teared away from like the previous scene that I was in. I don't know about you, but like this is a feeling that I actually get more and more as I get older. Just the ability for time to whiz by, especially uh-huh. like in these quarantine times where your environment doesn't change. Yeah. And months can slip by. And every once in a while, you have those moments where you're like, oh, fuck, it's like August now or something like that. And you get uh-huh. this little temporal whiplash. And that's something that yeah, I yeah. got from the, like, communicated very well. I was explaining this to Grace recently, because Grace is still, like, in that phase of her life where she's still in school. At least for me, school, like, represented a very dynamic time. Like, dynamic yet predictable, where it's, like, mm-hmm. every semester is, like, something different. And there's always, like some sort of like end goal on the horizon like basically from when you're born every year like there will be this new planned thing for your life 
And then, like, once you get out of that, like, it's all independently on you to, like, change the stimulus around you. And I was explaining this to Grace that, like, after that happens, that, like, time will just move faster because routine creates this thing where you know nothing nothing changes so days just like bleed together your memory of days like becomes less specific and she like understood it to her credit uh, which is probably not a concept that i could have understood while i was in school like fully and she's like that sounds awful and terrifying that just, yeah you you realize like the the finiteness of t- of time or like how easily like it gets away from you Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever seen that? Uh, I saw it on Reddit. It was a diagram of all the weeks of your life laid out in a chart. And I think it was just like tally marks on a page or something. You know, you count up the weeks of a life and it's, you know, it's a good amount, but it's not really that many. You can like definitely fit it on a poster if you wanted to and you can mark them off week by week. Mm. But that just mm-hmm. gives you like a fucking panic attack when you see stuff like that. Yeah. Not today, Satan. I'm sorry. That shit. No. <laughs> which is all i mean this is all related you know time passing mortality and death are all themes in the movie that it tries to tackle pretty hard and and i would say mm-hmm. you know just the whole to round off the time discussion that the, the the menace of like time going by faster and faster you know is is just a, a form of death anxiety or a flavor of it yeah. or prelude, prelude to it and so that's something that like the character is acutely aware of even at the beginning of the film. He like starts off by just reading obituaries. I want to talk about something from uh I'm thinking of anything that's kind of like in contrast to that depending on how you you view it. Uh-huh. Before I really had caught on to like this is just the imagination of a janitor when stuff was still starting to get weird in that movie. It seems pretty clear early on that there's something wrong with the time of his parents, at the very least. Like, they're kind of the first evidence to, like, some sort of, like, time warp happening. It's it's even Uh weirder because um, when you first see his dad, he has gray hair. Like, when he comes down the stairs, he has gray hair. And then the very next scene, when they're at the table... He has uh, just regular kind of young man or like middle-aged man hair. And Mm. it was so subtle that like the second scene, I was like, I thought he had gray hair. And I, it was subtle enough for me to just be like, I must, I must have just been mistaken. I missed it. I didn't, I didn't catch it until the old man version. My reality was like fucked with right there i was like oh i just i must have misremembered this thing That's that great. was like something i clearly noticed what a small mark to hit as like an editor or filmmaker to like get that exactly right so that like most people don't get it the ultimate place i was going with this is i can't remember what his mom says but she says something that made me feel like they were immortal all members of their family were just like these Im- immortal beings that had lived so long that their recollection of how much time had gone by just started to fade Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying yeah yeah there's that one line where they like he accidentally calls says his son is like 56 years old or something yeah and he corrects them yeah 26 yeah Yeah, that was probably that was probably part of it i think i've talked about like immortality before if you only had the immortality piece but nothing else like not invincibility or like perfect like health right. of your of your memory 
that like stuff would slowly start to become torturous. You would be this horribly like physically disfigured person because of all the scars that you would accumulate over that amount of time. And then also it, after a while, you just couldn't even remember like who you were or like what language you speak or anything just because so much time would have passed like between then and now. Right. Like how much stuff do you remember from 10 years ago? Like, let right. alone a thousand years ago. When you were saying, like, the anxiety of uh, time, like, the distortion of time is just a flavor of death anxiety, I think that in a fantasy sense, it can also be the inverse of that, where it's the distortion of time is an anxiety of being immortal. Mm, I like that. Thanks. So, Justin, as a, a person with, like, a larger vocabulary than both of us, why is this movie called Synecdoche? So, <laughs> well, I think it's, uh, it's basically, you know, a synecdoche is a part, it's a part of something that represents a whole, right? So, and that's so you, hard to understand without an example. I mean, that is just I know, an absolutely I know. inapproachable definition. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I think the, the video we showed pre-show, the guy said there's a standard example, which I wasn't familiar with, but I guess the example is, and I'm going to screw this up but it's like 50 keels plowed the water and now a keel <laughs> apparently is a part of a boat and so uh-huh. what he was saying was a fleet the 50 keels plowed the water that's really a fleet of boats plowed the water but i the can't believe that that's the standard example that you have to <laughs> i know like first I... explain 1800s like marine <laughs> stuff yeah i guess i never had to explain to me that way uh he used the example of uh it's from a supermarket in California, the Ginsburg poem, and he describes uh, Walt Whitman as graybeard. Now, Walt Whitman had a graybeard, so he used the graybeard to sort of represent Walt Whitman as a whole. Uh-huh. Um, if you called me, I don't know, AirPod, because uh, I'm wearing AirPods, then yeah. that would be a synecdoche because it's a part of me that's that's representing a whole. It's just a, it's just like a form of a nickname based on those examples. Yeah. There's real world examples too. You call somebody legs. Sure. sure. Yeah. I think that's a good example. Yeah. Legs. Hey, legs, get Um, over here. Right. Right. And people do (laughs) say that to me. So I I get it. That's an example I get. I mean, it's technically a literary device. Yeah. Is that how you think of it? It's used literarily. Uh, It's how I think of it because I, I learned it in literature school. Um, got but it, got it. I think there are, you know, sort of more practical examples. So if we were to apply it to the movie, there's it's several parts representing a whole. And what that whole seems to be is life. You know, I mean, I think that's what he's he seems mm-hmm. to set out to make is like a representation of what life is. I actually forget. Do you remember there's a moment in the movie where he says theater is this Uh, saying the unsaid truth or something like that yeah it is something like that and i feel like that's sort of what he's getting at is he's trying to make the like the er play right he's trying to like get to the truth which to me sounds like a very like stereotypical like if if the common man thinks of like an artistic person he's like oh they're trying to find the truth or something like that sure yeah that strikes me as like a very sort of like standard view of like being an artist in this very abstract way, sort of generalized way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's funny about Caden as, like, an artist is the side that we see of him at the beginning before he sort of 
slips into chaos is just him as a director. And mm-hmm. it's it's a little underwhelming or anodyne, right? Like, yeah, he casts young actors in the death of a salesman roles, but it's not more, it's not much more, uh, it's not deeper than that, I guess. It seems to be, he seems to be nothing special. This is why I was confused by the MacArthur Grant letter, because I was yeah. like, this guy does not appear to be any sort of ground-breaking director. Right, and whether tell. that's... Like, I have I have no knowledge of acting like in plays, so I just... Sure. I, I completely checked out for that part. I'm like, I guess that's <laughs> probably good, right? Yeah, and you know, that could be intention. It could be Kaufman commenting on the sort of shallowness and uselessness of these kinds of things, the Grant... Mm-hmm. Or it could just be a movie's shorthand. You know, we're we're just to accept that he is some well-known, accomplished, um, talented artist to a certain degree. But yeah. I think I like the first interpretation better that he's actually not exceptional in some ways. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's some, I think that's hinted at in some scenes. And also like yeah. ultimately in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, he never did finish his play. He never created a piece of work that was great in any way i mean he basically wasted his entire life in the pursuit mm-hmm. of that i want to follow up again on that like why is it called synecdoche key question oh because right, i right. have I, ha- I have my own thoughts on this oh can i do one i got a quick one okay yeah i think there's a lot of stuff in the movie that you could probably like try to interpret it through that like on purpose mm-hmm. but like one of the more straightforward ones is that he creates a set which like uh basically like recreates the city that he's in mm-hmm. and so in a in a spatial sense in a very, very literal sense he creates a version of new york that's small that is part of the whole but smaller than it it's smaller representation of the whole while still being part of the whole mm-hmm. that version of new york is supposed to represent his environment yeah and it increasingly becomes mm-hmm. so he eventually just lives in it yeah, sure. et cetera, et cetera. I think that's the most literal way of looking at it because the movie's called Synecdoche, New York. Yeah. You can see I really dug deep there. <laughs> well, and he lives... The movie starts in Schenectady, right? So if we're to extrapolate further, yeah. it's sort of his... Uh, maybe his way of representing where he... where his life was at before it, you know, devolved. Yeah. It's such a nerdy thing to do to use like this highbrow like literary term like and create like a giant metaphor of a movie just based on it, that. Yeah, it almost feels like something that Kaufman would mock, you know, uh-huh. like otherwise. Um, if this movie were to take place in some Kaufman movie, it would feel like a joke because it does seem too highfalutin and on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also funny that throughout the movie he struggles with the name of, which of course you would struggle with the name of the play, what do you call this thing, but the fact mm-hmm. that the title of the movie is itself a little off for us, I think, it, uh, who yeah. knows? I mean, it's funny, you can, there's so many points in this movie where you could say, that could have been intentional, maybe he was, maybe he was commenting on something, or it wasn't, and the title could be, could be that, I don't know. Yeah. Well, my whole interpretation of the synecdoche thing and i think both of you guys are right but i thought of it as especially after seeing that pre-show thing where it's like it's a part of something that represents the whole i more so just attributed that to like the characters so like the whole being Mm. 
Caden himself, and then all of the characters being fragmented versions of him. I didn't get the whole like life thing as much because the story is so specific. Towards the end, that like monologue where the the woman version of Caden is like talking in his ear. Mm-hmm. And she's like, uh, you're slowly slipping away from existence and like this is everyone's experience, like you are not special. So that gets a little bit more into life as this big thing. But other than that, for me, it's just like about Caden's very individualized experience and the way that he sees the world and if he could create recreate his world that this is what it would what it would look like. Oh really? I, I saw those concepts of like, you know, just um life and i've always wanted to say this in conversation but the human condition (laughs) and it plays out in him in very particular ways like we're not all playwrights and we haven't all followed his bizarre sequence of romantic relationships through and through but you know a lot of the things that he deals with are things that like we all deal with and so when I looked at the story, I was like thinking about it like more through that. It's just like how, you know, later in his life, he looks back and regrets. I'm like, oh, we all regret stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's kind of the way I thought about it. Because ultimately, like the play that he made was just about him. He purports it to be like this grand piece that's supposed to be about life and everything. But yeah. all that he can think about to put in it is himself. But I think it also like works on, on like one level, like, you know, it, it, anybody's experience is everybody's experience and what he's trying to do is to put that put a microscope up to life by like going as much yeah into detail into one thing as possible another thing that applies to this movie through the synecdoche thing for me was just those like surrealist moments i think a lot about his like doctor like the multiple like doctor visits that he goes to where the doctors are these very like cold inattentive people And then the other times when he's, like, reading that magazine that had his, like, daughter in it, or when he, like, sees his reality, like, in print, where he's, like, in the commercial, or he's, like, on the therapist's website, for me, that's, like, like, a part of his experience. Like, it's the way that, like, he's experiencing the world, and it's, I guess it's, like, his own synecdoche of reality. Yeah. If you go to the doctor's office and you're told that you have a brain tumor or something that's all you hear and so on screen all we see is the doctor comes in the room and says you have a brain tumor that doesn't exactly happen but it's like it's a similarly like simplistic sequence of events with the doctor but it represents something that in reality was probably a lot more complex with like bedside manner yeah yeah, yeah. and leading up to this thing but like what we see on screen is just the facts so for me like it's a difficult thing to explain but it's like the synecdoche is just like his like his filtered experience. It's like we're just seeing like the cliff notes of his of his reality on screen. Right, right. That lends itself yeah. nicely to like what you were saying earlier about how the movie can be viewed as like like his remembered past or something like that. Mm-hmm. Totally. Or you can imagine that's what you him. remember, right? Yeah. Yeah. He has many doctors' experiences, but what he pulls out of it all is you know, doctors are cold and all they do is send you to other doctors and all they think is that there's something wrong with you and so that's just how it's played Mm -hmm. and then i also i connected this weirdly to the reason that he's like a playwright i think i don't give theater enough credit as an art form but being someone who's like more into film 
and like know the the differences in the mediums that like film or uh, theater is a lot more exaggerated strictly by the physical nature of what it is i think i've talked about this before but it's like as an actor on a stage you have to project to an audience and therefore like reality becomes a lot more like uh vibrant and obtuse and larger than life that's what helped me think about this synecdoche like concept because his experience like throughout the world is like just highlights and simplified and exaggerated to me that's also what theater is it's like a slice of like this exaggerated reality and so of course he would be a playwright if that's how he experiences the world yeah i think that holds water his life really much does come become a play by the end of it and Mm -hmm. so like it makes sense like even in the beginning people were characters with like a capital c you know the doctors don't show a lot of depth or variety they just are the emblematic doctor i think i associate plays with more maybe naked symbolism and metaphor okay then movie tends then film tends to be it's just there's just something about the burning house to me that feels that just feels like a like a play setting Mm -hmm. and i think it's just because it's so exaggerated and absurd Mm -hmm. and that's where you know absurdism was born right is on the stage so um i would say that it does feel it does have a more of a yeah a stage environment than a that a film feel yeah and i think it's i've always just believed that like the reason that plays are like that is they are on a stage and the people watching it are far away and so like (laughs) in (laughs) order in order to like communicate what you're communicating you have to simplify everything so therefore it becomes less representative of reality that's a hundred percent it yeah i think that's true I think that's true. Yeah, I love it. We can expound and expound about the nuances of theater performance. You're like, (laughs) wasn't it just because like they were on a stage and most of the crowd is pretty far away and they didn't have speakers? Uh Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was that. I have a question. Are the eyes a part of the brain? (laughs) Yeah, I think they are. Yo, I think they are because, um, so I have awful eyes and i i go to the optometrist you know once a year just to find out how worse my eyes are sorry did you say uh, ophthalmologist (laughs) so funny the ophthalmologist scene is that the one oh there's one of the doctor scenes just it's funny seeing the world but yeah they'll go and they can look at my eyes and they'll say like hey by the way it's looking good back there you know near your brain because your eyes look good so it's weird like getting like a brain thumbs up from my eye doctor (laughs) (laughs) i think it's an interesting question of classification because they're obviously connected Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be that hard to think of the eyes as an organ of the brain since that is strictly a information exchange relationship between the eyes and the brain it's not like between the eyes and the heart which is doing stuff inside the body that's just like a tell me what's going on it's a sensor right Right. if your if your eyes die like it doesn't affect your brain or i mean like not in any sort of life-threatening way that is true the brain is the ultimate synecdoche (laughs) (laughs) like the flow diagram goes to brain and then from brain (laughs) is eyes like the eyes are not connected to anything else other than the brain as far as like function is concerned 
I don't know. I'm getting behind with the doctor on this one. <laughs> you think the eyes are part of the brain? I think you could argue for that, yeah. I don't know, man. I, I think you're you're digging too deep here because what does function like the way that you're talking about? Like what's connected to the brain but isn't part of it and has like an exchange of information? So like <sighs> the fact that I reach out and, and touch something, like my brain's telling me to re- reach out and touch this thing and... Like, it's sending me information of what it feels like back to me. Well, first of all, but, like, I love that we got sucked into this conversation. What? I love that we got sucked into this, <laughs> first of all. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, to me, like, the eyes are just, like, this antenna sticking out of the brain itself. And maybe you could just say that, like, the, whole, the entire body is just, like, an organ of the brain. I think that's fair. It's a part. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Okay. We could go anywhere. Do you want to throw something out? Sure. I think between both movies that like gender is played with a lot. Yes. Like gender identity. I that is harder for me to analyze in those movies, but I'd be interested to hear what you have to think. I think it's I can't in like good faith like make any projections as to like how Charlie Kaufman like feels about this and his like own real life. But like the theme certainly comes up a lot in his writing. The most obvious one, I think, is in Being John Malkovich. Right. It's literally a woman entering into the man of a body, and, like, that's where she feels more like herself. And then she, like, strikes up uh, that relationship with the other woman. But in, like, um, I'm thinking of ending things, there's, you know, obviously, like, the main character is part of Jake, the other main character, and she's certainly feminine and there's this part where like you see the photo of her on the wall and she's like who is this and he's like it's me she's like no it was me right 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 that's like a subtle one i'm sure there's more clues in that movie um but in this one the ultimate version of that is uh when he kind of when he becomes ellen in a certain sense this ellen who this character that doesn't really exist i think we're never really explained like who the real ellen is supposed to be if there is one right which is interesting why he would cast the real version of ellen is that who in that the is play to begin with well no like, i just mean that like we never he never saw the real ellen yet he decided to make the uh a character yeah. play the real ellen despite yeah. that yeah so he and kind of broke his formula there that was the character he was playing right like that's the one sort of character he inhabits is this mm-hmm. Ellen person. So I think that's at why the very end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, no, at the be- well with the, cause he's pretending to be the cleaning lady. Right. And that's yeah. who Ellen is. Mm-hmm. So I think that was significant to him to have that role, whatever that may be, whoever that may be. He was cleaning very early on. As soon as Adele left, he started cleaning her studio. Right. And, uh, very vigorously like that. What I I love is, um, so he becomes Ellen in a sense, and there's like some like gender switching going on there. And then like even early in the movie, there's this like throwaway line when they're talking about the plumber, the Olive is asking like who the plumber is. And he's like, he's a man who fixes and like Adele corrects him and he's like, or a woman. And then he says, he's a man or a woman. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then ultimately when the ellen character is cast that actress eventually is cast as Caden, and like 
through dialogue, it seems like that version of Caden, as portrayed by whoever that woman is, is like the most idealized version of himself. And then begins like instructing him on like how to live his life in a better way. And so right. it, it makes it Can seem I just like interject something real fast. Yeah. That the entire movie is him gradually just like giving other people uh, control of his life to like a greater and greater degree. At the earliest occurrence of it was uh, Hazel telling him what to say to her to flirt with her. And she was like, and then you'll say how I'm like the most beautiful person with a great smile or, uh-huh. or whatever it was that he said. Um, but he like follows like happily being told what to do. And he slowly and slowly like just lets go until eventually Ellen, the actor playing Ellen, just said like, how about I, you're overworked. How about I just take over for you? He eventually just relinquishes his life. Right. So is that what uh-huh. he always wants? I mean, she's the one that tells him to die. Right. He, right. She, yeah. she releases him from life. So as a direct, I mean, that's the ultimate irony, right? Is he's, he's a director. That's his occupation. And that's what he sets out to be throughout the movie is he's going to direct this, this massive masterpiece. And yet all he really ever wanted or needed was to relinquish that control and for someone else to come in and tell him a woman to come in and tell him uh, what to do. Uh huh. Yeah. And also, yeah, like that there's a part towards the end of the movie when um I think you hear like flashbacks of Catherine Keener saying, "Remember when you let me you sat down and let me paint you or you you sat for a portrait." And then it shows Diane Weist's portrait. Yeah. So there's right. this implication that they that they are just this melding of a person, right? Like they're yeah. they're one and I... the same. I don't know where it is, but I have I, re- I wrote it down, so it must be in the movie somewhere. But in quotes, I say, sometimes I thought I'd be better as a girl. I guess that's that's somewhere in the movie. Yeah, that is somewhere. So what do you so what do you make of it? Like these kind of like gender reversals, like in the other movies, not this movie, but when it happens in being John Malkovich and in I'm thinking of ending things, it, it seems to me to just becoming more from like he's a person that plays a lot with the concept of identity self-identity mm-hmm. yeah. and so he plays around with that concept which means like making you the same as another person that's different from you and that includes just like switching the gender on you mm-hmm. there's no reason that you wouldn't in syndicoke he he it looks like it has more meaning behind it and, and what makes me think that is just like it's not just a random person that takes over his life when the actor of ellen takes over the movie starts like delving into her life like uh-huh. very distinctly like the life of a woman very different from the life of a man in that that she's a, a wife and has had children or maybe not had children but it's just a very life like different from his like this is somebody taking over who's completely different from anything that he has been in the movie mm-hmm. she has like lived correct me if i'm wrong but the person that she that they show him with isn't his name eric the man the husband where she says yeah. like yeah right the husband oh are you okay eric or something because that my is homosexual of partner of eric? his homosexual lover wow. eric whoa wow. dude what if he really is a homosexual that's reality and what we're seeing is a, a remembered version of his life where he's not a homosexual where that never happened and wow. so maria was right like she was telling olive his daughter the whole time that he like he's a crazy person he's a closeted homosexual there's this guy eric 
that was a painfully funny scene when Olive dies. So heartbreaking, but also just hilarious. Cornering him into yeah. like admitting homosexuality just so she can and die then, in peace. And then saying no, ultimately, right. like not forgiving it's, him. It's not so even. it's such a weird, weird feeling that that evokes because it's almost simultaneous. This is so absurdly stupid and also horrifically sad. Like I, I felt very sad watching her confront him about that, even though I know it's it's an it's an absurdism, right? Like that's just not mm-hmm. it's right. silly. So yeah. what I made of that scene, just trying to look at it through the lens of this is a movie about the human experience, is that there's times in life where you're gonna have relationships that just don't work out for irreconcilable reasons. Like his relationship with his daughter at that point just like can't be mended. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's out of your control. Like in his case, like it was, you know, mostly out of his control that all these things happened to his family. I think on a, on a same tack, uh, we've all had arguments with people, whether they be like romantic partners or family or friends, where the argument was so stupid and yet it caused such a deep like emotional scar or a rift or something like that I think that's another example of that where it's absurd to a point, yet it's also very painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you explain that? Why does that happen? In real life? No idea. Humans are stupid. Or in film. Yeah. Either I can't or. answer that question. I don't actually know anything. <laughs> can't give you real answers. Justin seemed like he finished like the first half of like a very like philosophical like parable. We've all had this thing happen to us. And this is just a thing that happens. I felt like there was supposed to be a solution. (laughs) I've been brought up by American commercials. Has this ever happened to you? And here's the solution. (laughs) What do you think about the ending of the movie? You know, metaphor aside, like, what do you think actually happened with the explosions and everybody dying? Oh, yeah. It seems like on rewatch that I thought that all of the kind of apocalyptic stuff that was outside was more to do with the real world. But Uh it's obvious that when he walks outside, like the warehouse ceiling is above him. And so it seems like whatever happened, like is contained within the world of the warehouse play. Right, right. Specifically, that ending scene does have that feature. But earlier, they do have the scenes that are um, like verifiably outside of the warehouse where there's military trucks and gas masks. And I just saw recently, like, there's a scene where they Uh leave the warehouse and there's people crowded all around. One of the guys, like, uh, is like, hey, when's this thing coming out? He's like, oh, you know, still working on it. He's like, you know, we're having a pretty hard time out here. Like, they're Mm -hmm. waiting to get in for some reason. Um, I I would love to find it. Let me find the, um, I I, I wrote it down here. There is, like, another part where they're outside and it's, like, it feels very, like, escape from New York, like, police state stuff going on. And, uh... I don't know if you noticed this, but like the like the police are like clowns in like one scene. No, I don't remember that either. I have the time code for you. One hour seven minutes. Oh, that's the scene that I'm on. I think we're talking about the same scene. When is it opening? When it's ready. We need to get in. It's bad okay. out here. Did you guys hear that? Yeah. yeah. He's like, we need to get in. It's bad out here. No, I was thinking of calling it something like room. 
Oh, there's some clowns back there. I don't even know what it means. Can I have a nickel if I doesn't play with my pee pee mm. no more? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Weird. Look at this bus, dude. Look at what the bus is called. Yeah. Funland, yeah. People seem to be being crowded in a bus, like Holocaust style, on a bus that says Funland. Yeah. That part, I, I love that part of the movie. It doesn't really have a lot of bearing on the movie, at least in any obvious way. But when you see that scene, it just makes the story so unsettling. Just to know that the world outside him is crumbling. But yeah, the world outside does seem like progressively very scary. Yeah. And that's kind of, if the whole movie is about death, it's kind of like the society is also dying around him. The whole movie is just decline. Which is ironic because it's, if the movie is supposed to encompass like the human experience and like he's doing that through a microscope of his own life, that like his life is not representative of normal life anymore right outside it's this very unrelatable thing that he's working on mm -hmm. uh, do you think the people at the end of the movie in the warehouse are actually dead it could be a play right like that's what i was thinking like that could be yeah. his ending of the play is just everybody dies i feel like after ellen is there like a real name to that character yeah because they introduce her they say her real name yeah i don't remember it uh, Diane Weist is the actress. Diane Weist? Is that what you said? Weist? It's like Weist. West, but East. Diane Weist. <laughs> that doesn't sound real. <laughs> uh, but yeah, when she like ultimately takes over as as Caden, it seems to me that like at that point she's in total control. Yeah. Of like everything that happens like in his world beyond that yeah. point whatever apocalypse is happening outside is still contained in the warehouse but it's like by design that kind of sets right. her up as like this really nefarious character which like i just didn't like it would be hard for me to do that just based off of what i've seen i don't i don't think you those actions necessarily have to be nefarious i think they are like in total control of Caden's life but i don't think she's doing it with like evil motivations you know but don't you think yeah. didn't you say you thought that she was the one that created the uh like death scene at the end but that's just like part of the play you know but he, like that's part, of her, that's part of her version of the play but yeah he was going to die it's like because i you think it was possible that she like put on a play for his death like to help him to yes. create like a death for this man that fits him somehow yeah I think right. so. Right. So that, I think like that's ultimately Yeah. You could you could say that's either a neutral or a benign act, right? Rather than a malicious yeah, one. I um, can see that. But but I I think it, I think that gets to like probably what Kaufman would say is that there it's it, it, there's just like a I don't know, ultimately a disinterested god or a god that's just creating this world for us to live in and we live and we die and there's no intent behind it. Yeah, but she's not. She's not a. Yeah, she's not a malicious presence or or being. She's just sort of there to create life and end it. Yeah. yeah. What What I definitely don't want to do is like to think of her as like a human character with like ambitions and incentives and that kind of thing. If If I can right. like think of her as sort of a like an embodiment of fate or God or something like that, I'd be more comfortable with. Totally. Well, I think she's kind of there's. They set her up for being at her entrance for being like a 
something special because he says to her, you're weirdly close to what I want to be. And I feel like we never hear that sentiment from him ever in the movie where something feels right on. He's always searching and he's always fixing and he's always tweaking. Seems like she's meant to be there. Yes. And he's always like sort of correcting people and mm-hmm. someone, Sammy will say something and then he'll say to Hazel, he shouldn't have said that. But with her, it he sort of feels this like, oh, she's right. Like she's the she's the person for this role. Mm-hmm. Did you guys notice like after she was introduced that he wore a wig for a little bit of time? Yeah, yeah. I did. I was curious about that. To look more like her, maybe is what I thought because that was the approximate length. But it was only that scene, right? Right. Was it only yeah. the funeral scene? I was curious if that was a holdover from like a deleted scene. Um, I didn't know what to make of it exactly. Well, his hair is like it's longer than in any other part of the movie, so it doesn't right. it, it doesn't seem like it's supposed to represent like a different point in time for the character. It seems right. like deliberately it, like, a wig. It's clearly like a wig, like in the reality yeah. of the movie. Yeah, I'm not good at picking out wigs, but like this is a wig. <laughs> it looked pretty bad. But yeah, the reason the wig is there, like kind of puzzled me and still does yeah threw me off kind of remind me back to the oh i got something here do you remember when uh sammy uh about when he got formally introduced to the movie and there's a scene where they come out of the bathroom and sammy's so tall his head like pokes out the top do you remember that scene he's like looking over the stall they're both yeah. like looking at his shit right and they yeah. saunter out of the bathroom and they're both like wearing like a suit similar clothing and he's mm-hmm. like mirroring his body language mm-hmm. so that's the to eric me is... andre like clone gag <laughs> <laughs> what is going <laughs> on but anyways yeah so the ending of the movie is very ominous i like it i like where the movie ends as far as like how abstract it goes like it ends in a place where it's basically impossible to like say anything objective about the story because I think Kaufman's going for this thing that's almost literary and you look at it and you're just meant to talk about it. Yeah, what do you make of the actress that he ends up with in the end? So, she's a she's a bit she's a she had a bit part uh, in Ellen's dream like it, it's implied that it was several years ago. Right. Uh-huh. Right. That was another moment where we just time jumped inexplicably Uh because we had gone through this montage where we're seeing things of ellen's childhood the picnic that she said she'll remember for the rest of her life those scenes yeah and 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 that act the very final actress that is with him when he dies is the mom from that scene it's the mother of uh ellen's or of ellen of of ellen fictionalized fictionalized past of ellen as portrayed through the play it's her which mother. at that point is is news to us that this montage scene that we had just seen was it's, reenacted it, it requires like a lot of like uh extrapolation or interpolation um if, from you as the viewers like okay so the play has like transcended Caden's life and is now like also exploring the past of this other character that he's created yeah and like if you don't like understand like how the movie is progressing like at all like that sequence just wouldn't wouldn't make sense to you at all so it wow it it requires a pretty big leap from like understanding the rules of the movie to get what she's talking about that's i'm only understanding that now that we just brought that up but i never thought i just pieced it together that that any montage was acted 
by the characters in the movie and not a real do we ever see a real montage in the movie and something a scenes that are taking chronologically out of place from the movie there's some scene slicing where it goes back and forth seemingly but nothing like a flashback something that's like a movie device yeah right yeah i don't think so i don't know i kind of like i've always liked that we end with someone that we really haven't spent any time with i i don't know if i can articulate exactly what i like about that only that it feels probably how life actually is you know we either die alone or we die with maybe one person that we love and surrounded by strangers otherwise. And I feel like the fact that this is someone that we don't really have an emotional connection to doesn't really matter. It's clear that he in that moment is connecting with her. And I think that's to a certain extent kind of powerful. Mm -hmm. He says that he loves her right before he dies. Yeah. Right. He did. Mm -hmm. Wow. He says, I love you. And they like just met because she was a surrogate for a synecdoche for hazel you think or was it just a more general love of a lonely man i think i would lean more towards general yeah because i don't know if that woman is indeed just an actress representing the mother of a fictional character but like if that's truly who that person is there's one point in the movie where i was i was like is this person even real or even was that sequence of the flashback of ellen's childhood but like was that even a, a play thing <laughs> a play thing you know what i'm saying though where it's like maybe that scene where like the mother is talking to the daughter under the tree that maybe that was just like a manufactured memory from um Caden to you know flesh out like mentally flesh out this character that he has in his head and so therefore the mother character is just this uh fictional maternal presence that he's like assigned a lot of weight to that like maybe it mm -hmm. represents his and ellen's mother simultaneously okay. and so maybe she's not even real maybe she's just like an amalgamation of those things and like like their interaction at the end for that reason maybe just is imagined and isn't real yeah yeah it definitely could be i don't like that that's not like my ultimate like place where i land on it but at one point i was like this could just like not be real at all well that's kind of like more where i i would have leaned but i liked your theory about how the ending might have been orchestrated which now makes more sense of why you know the the montage of ellen's childhood and the fact that her mother in the montage is the same mother at the end that all just made sense to me mm -hmm. that she took control of the play and therefore now the movie is going to explore a little bit of her life instead of his because as director of the play they're basically like the driver of the narrative and so that was just kind of like that because he relinquished control the narrative kind of like deviated a little bit mm -hmm. here's another like gender thing that i can't remember if i actually remembered correctly in olive's diary does she refer to maria as her father fathers maria. fathers I think there because the, the we learned previously to that that Adele has married two German people and we like learned their names. Oh, when when he visited Germany, so I think she's the she said I'm having fun with like my two new fathers and Maria. I see. Yeah. It's like Gunter and Heinz, and then there's like two other people too. It's unclear whether they're fathers or what. When he met with Maria, she was like, "Oh yeah, I live with like Adele and the two new husbands and Oliver and." 
And it like genuinely seemed like they were having like a good time. Like they were having like healthy lives. Uh-huh. All the weirdness with the tattoos aside, like it just came off as like he's missing the party, basically. He's on the yeah. outside looking into a good situation. Yeah, it's like cosmically distressing FOMO, right? Like he Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause like he's literally missing out on this great life with his uh-huh. and loses his daughter. Yeah. Along the lines, I love how underplayed the second family is compared to the first. Like, we have some emotional connection to the first family and Olive, you know, super cute kid. Obviously very curious. Oh, you, you're talking about Claire. I miss Olive and the other one is what he says. <laughs> I need uh-huh. to find my daughter. Your daughter's right here. My real daughter. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love, and you feel that because up to that point, you spent a lot of time with the first family, but the second family happened like that we first find out about the daughter because the wife is saying like of course people know that we fuck i mean yeah you know because of our daughter i'm like whoa whoa well also like moved really fast when you're introduced to like claire and the other daughter it's like totally in absurdist land the movie yeah but when you meet um olive and adele like it's still a normal movie at that point so you sort of like get to spend some time with them as like a believable family Whereas the other characters, it's just like, this could this could be anything. And so I'm not developing right. any sort of feelings for these characters. Yeah. Right, right. Such an interesting way to make you empathize with, like, uh, objectively, like, not great guy. Like, probably not great husband and caregiver. Because when he says that he needs to find his real daughter, you're kind of like, yeah, where? what's up with that? And you have no emotional connection to the new family, just as he does. Like, he is not really present with his new family at all. The uh, the new daughter has, like, one of the top eight lines in the movie, though. What did she say? Can I have a nickel if I stop playing with my pee-pee? <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, yeah. <laughs> you know what? We should knock out funny scene. That was my thought was our funniest, uh, our favorite funny moments. I have a few. Here's like one of my favorite funny scenes. Hello? Yeah, I'm so glad I finally got you. Hello, who is this? Caden. Ellen? Caden. I can't wait to see you and Olive on the 12th. I have have to go. I'm sorry, Um, there's a party. I'm famous. (laughs) (laughs) This one? The the seizure? This is a very terrifying seizure to watch. I'm sick! Man, you know, that's such a big laugh line for me, but looking back, that's I think that's probably another, you know, point in the gender um, gender swapping. Uh, yeah. Bucket. Yeah. I think that... But it's so too. funny. Guys, I got, uh, I got misgendered the other day. I was, like, out and about, and, like, my hair is just, like, to here. <laughs> and I have a mask on. So I was, like, picking up a dolly from, like, a local rental place, and this guy was like, what's up, ladies? I was with Stacy. <laughs> and I just turn around and he very... turn around with your mustache yeah. and <laughs> I think it's I think it, it's probably something that just the like if if you ever get misgendered in your life like it really sticks with you and so like that's a really like palatable joke for me because I have like kind of a higher pitched voice and so it happens to me like at drive-throughs 
like more oh, often. Oh, drive-throughs all the time. Drive-throughs like. and on the phone, yeah. That's funny. Uh, this happened to me like on a customer service call like a month ago or something. Like someone called me ma'am and I just like corrected them and I was like, it's sir, but thank you. And they were just like, ma'am? Oh, oh, I'm so That's got to be a sir for you, okay? Because I'm a man. And then that made me feel bad for like correcting them. <laughs> <laughs> when that happens to me, I'm just like, no, you're that's close enough. You got it. <laughs> One off. Stacy's also been misgendered when she had really short hair, like way shorter than I even wear mine regularly. We like went to a restaurant one time and they're like, what's up, guys? <laughs> what's up, bros? Just the two waiters. guys here. <laughs> the waiter just comes up. He's like, what's up, dude? We started like slapping our dicks against each other. Stacy's like, wow. So this is what it's like. It gets like uh, the waiter's like, uh, like oddly like personable. It's like, oh, boys night out, huh? makes assumptions about your day so i think um the scene with the doctor i'm not remembering now which doctor it is but it's the doctor who's like very quiet and he's just writing the whole time i think it may be the ophthalmologist i remember that scene being very funny what happens in it just a comedy of errors you know it's just the thing that kaufman does really well which is dialogue it's just people not understanding each other not even talking at cross purposes but talking in different realities (laughs) i should say that like the dialogue is like awesome yeah it maybe comes across more and maybe not comes across more but it's something that if you watch i'm thinking of ending things if you start watching that movie and are not prepared to listen to dialogue if you're the kind of person that's expecting a more traditionally structured kind of regular movie and you're expecting the dialogue scene to just lead to developments of plots or actions that you will sit through that movie for 30 minutes very unsatisfied if you come out from those perspectives so that's something like you got you have to be ready for those first 30 minutes of that movie totally that yeah like a third of that movie is takes place in the car right Mm -hmm. like at the at the beginning and then i guess towards the end in the car but i love the dialogue there's some stuff that he catches that's like super relatable and human like when she catches the swing set and she sees something on the road, but the person you're talking to hasn't seen it. So you're now trying to mm-hmm. hold a conversation with somebody about something that they have no relation to at all. Right. And, and mm-hmm. can't show any interest in that. That's just yep. like, I want to can some of this. I'm thinking of ending things discussion. Cause I think I want to talk about it more fully later. Are you okay with doing more funny scenes on synecdoche to round that? I got, up? I actually, I created a hashtag funny uh hashtag on my workflow so i can simply with the power of technology okay so in order of occurrence eye doctor scene <laughs> is it is, are the eyes a part of the brain pissing in the sink like when the plumber comes to his house oh man that's that's like the most like viscerally disturbing scene is that one his brown piss yeah it's like cola colored pee oh it's awful it's it, that scene makes me feel really bad. Like with all of the weird, gruesome stuff, like yeah. with the gum surgery and and otherwise, yeah. that one like makes me feel the worst. But that all that scene also has one of the biggest laugh moments for me, and it's um, I'm I'm getting ready to ship these two uh, yeah. pieces, and it cuts little to shipping the, boxes, the tiny boxes. It's just <laughs> so fucking stupid. I love it, man. <laughs> Did you see that, Trevor? We remember when we watched Rushmore that we commended like crate boxes like wooden boxes uh-huh and in this scene it's at fifteen ten. 
<laughs> she she makes she makes little thumb sized paintings and she has these little hand sized crate boxes that she's gonna ship out. It's just delivered so straightly, like it's it's so funny. And her line is like she's like exasperated. She's like, I gotta get this done. I'm I'm preparing to ship these two you know crates, and then it cuts to them. It's just a good sight gag. Yeah, right. He's there's a lot of great sight gags. You can tell it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon, right? Like there's just so many. the The coffin gets me every single fucking time. The tiny the father, his, his father's coffin, his father's coffin that they had to fill. Just with. sounds like you're saying Kaufman. I know. I think I did. <laughs> uh, the coffin. He she says that they had to fill it with cotton balls so his body wouldn't rattle around. <laughs> to me, that's like another absurdist thing. Is like everything surrounding his father's death. Like his father's death is like the worst possible yes. version of like your your parents. That's death. right. Because he's like that. the the hospital called me. They say he died and he regretted life and like he, he called out was, your name in his death. Uh-huh. Right. Just like every he worst gave period. the longest and saddest it's deathbed <laughs> speech we've ever heard. And yeah, it's the classic again, like a Looney Tunes joke where you hear. He gets on the phone, he's on the phone for 10 seconds, and then he hangs up and he has a minute of explanation of what the person said on the phone. Like, it's yeah. it's, it's a classic structure, but it's still so funny. I really like that sequence, because like when he gets to the part about how they said that he died in terrible pain and slowly or whatever, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they like went out of their way to tell that to him? That's so dumb. But then it keeps going like into more absurd territory that I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, got it. Yeah. I love the moment when he's in the audition and he's like, I want to have sex with you until we merge into this like mythological creature that's like a fusion of like penis and vagina. Yeah. Penis <laughs> and it and goes vagina so chimera. like deep into like that like visual <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> like two mouths like ever kissing and like a single voice that like whispers to itself. It gets so I weird. just imagine like this crazy like biblical like meeting of two like yeah. god-like things just <laughs> fucking in the stars that's exactly what i think of too. it's obscene it's it's yeah. <laughs> the biggest thing i've ever thought of in the world and it's that penis and vagina chimera i think of like you guys ever seen the never-ending story yeah it's on the to-do list there's like a, a scene in that movie that really freaked me out as a kid it's where they have to pass through this like gateway of these two like sphinx like statues right the big yeah yeah and like you can't pass through it unless you're like pure of heart or something otherwise these like sphinxes have this like laser god vision that will just like obliterate you like as soon as you step in front of them and remember that really freaking me out as a kid because like the purity of like my heart seems like something that's totally out of my control (laughs) (laughs) and then like these giant like and they're like topless too they're like these very sexualized statues (laughs) and so like this mythical like uh kama sutra god thing that we're talking about i just thought of those (laughs) these like god vision like pure of heart like deities i i have a couple more funny scenes that that are like the standout ones that i want to get through okay okay this one's great when he gets to Germany and like finds that like the pink box gift he gave to Olive has been disposed of. Oh yeah. It like never reached her. It's like mm-hmm. such a over the top dramatic scene. He's like 
takes out eye drop solutions, <laughs> pours it in his eyes, and then starts to cry. That's like a cartoon, right? <laughs> you mentioned Looney Tunes or whatever. Earlier. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. I thought that was great. <laughs> These artificial tears. I'm actually more curious about the gift itself. Maybe it's not worth analyzing, but it's like a like, box. Is it just, just a pink box? It's a it pink nose, box that just right? says nose and has like a little <laughs> a little drawing of it. My take of that I, is that like he just bought the only pink thing that they had in the store and it just didn't make any sense at all. But that's so specific. It's just like a right. a pink nose. I looked it up. I, I was like, does pink nose like mean something? Urban <laughs> dictionary says it means penis, so Sure. <laughs> and we all know Kaufman is a frequent contributor to urban dictionary so that is a great scene the therapist is really funny all of her scenes i wanted yeah. to talk about the therapist more she's great she like kind of straddles the scenes that seem more real and then when it gets like really bizarre so like she has that uh, uh, initial first meeting with kaden and adele and adele's like i fantasized about kaden dying and <laughs> she's like does that make does that feel terrible, Caden? And he's like, yes. She's like, good. <laughs> and it's just like a hard, it's like a hard cut from that. She like straddles a line for me from like being actually insightful to being just completely oblivious. The therapist seems like this, what I imagine like intellectual people who think they're above therapy think about therapists where it's, it's like kind of an answer to like your problems with life, but it's ultimately like a scam to make money so the whole right, like book right the cost of the book thing the book and then thing. Like, uh like she shows up at the very end like she's got there's like a book on the ground or something yeah. um so it, it's like pretty critical of like what the therapist does and it ultimately like devolves into just like his like sexual attraction to her i feel like this is what that scene represents when he's on the plane because he's like reading the book i imagine trying to gain like trying his best to like gain something insightful and then his just like mind sexualizes her like in the middle of of reading this book and then once the like sexual desire fades as illustrated by like her i imagine an imagined version of her being there like comes onto him and then he denies it and then like that's the end of that fantasy and so therefore the book and like her relevance in his mind has no more meaning and that's why the book is blank beyond that point. Huh. So yeah. it's like he's trying his best to make sense of his relationship with the therapist up until that point where he's like, okay, I'm just sexually attracted to her and that doesn't mean anything. This book is now blank. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a lot to dig in here with Caden's like, he has like some sexual pathologies, all his crying in bed and stuff and whatnot. <laughs> Uh, your explanation is better than anything that I came up with. I just I couldn't think of anything other than that scene that was just Did, funny. Does that make sense? Like I was, it was I just like a sense. theory, a theory that I had. But yeah, yeah, totally. It's like once the sexual drive like dissipated in the form of like her presenting and him not engaging, it's like the therapist never came up again. It's almost like like a lot of his relationships, you know, are kind of like sexually driven ultimately. Mm -hmm. that could be another another case of that mm -hmm. yeah and i think uh that scene in the airplane too 
I guess right before that happens, right before the book ends, she looks at him and she says, it's really working on you. You look totally unrecognizable or, or something like that, right? It, it feels like a compliment. So I think yeah. that's another, it, it feels like he's sort of trying to glean some sort of validation from her in his own head that you're right. Ends when he just sexualizes her and totally kills whatever therapy was actually there on the table. Mm-hmm. Her body language was so funny. Just like lifts. I didn't understand what was going on. She like lifts her skirt. I'm, I'm like, wait a minute, are we? And then as soon as that thought came to mind, she put it down and exclaimed yeah. that he ruined the moment. I love how uh, in that scene and then like the one where he meets Maria in Germany that like the when extreme stuff starts to happen, like the immediate surrounding of people are like completely unaffected by it. When he's at the cafe with Maria and he's like yelling and then ultimately attacks her and they're like rolling yeah. around on the ground. No one around is like reacting in any realistic way. Right, right. They kind of <laughs> notice the scuffle a little bit, but they don't really do anything. You would be calling the police at that point. Like if, two people were like fighting on the ground especially like and i don't know germans dude i don't know what their culture is maybe you're right what happened with his daughter is like truly like horrible like you re- you feel really bad for this for this guy for Caden. his daughter like got tattooed by this crazy person who's telling lies about him like it's completely unfair to him i think is like the way it's supposed to come off he doesn't deserve what is happening mm-hmm yeah, and to to what extent that's real is totally in question, right? Like how much cuz we're only we only exist in his head. And so how much of this is really like uh how much of of it is like him being like blameless in the situation or uh-huh or what we don't know. Mm-hmm. The Eric guy really threw me for a loop when you brought that up earlier. That Eric his homosexual lover might have been that other guy that came up Right, yeah. yeah, I'm almost positive his name was Eric in the <laughs> it was, domestic it was. scenes. Between so you think that, like, Ellen is this, uh, or at least, like, the version of Ellen, as according to Caden, is just, like, a device to sort of suppress, like, his homosexuality? Or it's, like, maybe all that stuff with Eric is, like, totally real, but, yeah. like the mechanic of Ellen and her husband is just his way of rationalizing that story. I love that. Can I tell you about this book I'm reading right now? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm do you have more to this... say on that thing? What I just said? Okay, if I if I just completely like veer the conversation in a different direction, <laughs> I I intone the sentence in a way that makes it seem like I'm I'm like uh, working off the wake of what you just said, but really I'm just completely saying something else. No, it connects back. Okay. So I'm reading this book, the David Sedaris book that I'm reading, Calypso, and he's like he's a gay man. He's 50-ish now grew up in the 80s and he talks about like when he was uh growing up and becoming an adolescent that one of the things he did and he wasn't like uh out and gay early on you know this is like a time and period when you were just closeted for a long time until you just couldn't be but one of the things that in his adolescent mind that he did to kind of rationalize what was going on is create a fantasy for himself a fantasy where he uh met a woman and made her his wife but then in the fantasy uh she would die tragically and so then he would get to 
capitalize on all those empathy points with all his friends and family you know this this fantasy where something really bad happens to you and everybody's really nice to you for a long time Mm -hmm. and so in the fantasy you know he would get all of that and then he would live the rest of his life as a widower a widowee conveniently Mm -hmm. he he fantasized a situation where conveniently he can get all the benefits of being heterosexual like having a wife getting all the benefits of the empathy from the loss and Mm -hmm. still end up living as a in a non-heterosexual being single basically mm-hmm. so he like creating like a, such an elaborate situation himself where he could like still be himself but within the confines of a traditional uh heterosexual marriage and so it's so interesting so the way it relates back to what you said like what if Caden is a gay man who has created this fanny himself as a like failed romantic partner like over and over again failed and failed relationships as a way Mm -hmm. to just hide that part of himself from himself yeah and i'm gonna pick up my mic i'm gonna drop it from this height you're taking credit for the thing i said though (laughs) (laughs) as was intended there's a funeral scene where like caden's kind of saying like there's 11 million other people in the world out there which is like 11 million where the rest of the people go Uh right and each of them are the main characters of their own story. And I'll never know that. And he was lamenting about that. I'd forgotten about the, I think he says 13 million. I'd forgotten about that scene, that line. You remember that's that line, about, Trevor? Mm-hmm. That's about how many people are in New York, right? Yeah. So I, I interpreted that line a little differently because obviously like that number doesn't make any sense for the world. Right. And so I thought that maybe that he had become so sucked into the world of his play that like maybe 11 million or 13 million, whatever it was, is just like the number of cast members he's hired. That's like (laughs) maybe his like his interpretation of the world is like only the one that he's built within that warehouse. And maybe it's 11 million people. It could also be the population of New York. There's another part of the movie where he said about when he was deciding where to do the play before he like gets to the warehouse, he said something along the lines of, we need to do the play in New York. That's like where the important people are that we want to see the play are. So already kind of yeah. marking like his his world as far as his career is concerned is in New York. He's a completely well, uh, New yeah. York guy. As a, yeah, especially like as sort of an elite theater director you know that's someone who you'd imagine would have a very narrow view of who his audience is i looked it up it's definitely not uh like metro new york is like 19 million people it's between 8 and 19 depending on how you're categorizing the the demographics but okay um, that's the ballpark though it's the ball i mean i guess it's the ballpark and it probably i i would imagine that's like what his like purview is is like just this set number of people in new york but it's still it's a really striking line because you hear it and it's so incredibly off you know that it feels yeah. really strange to hear there's Man, i just keep thinking about that scene where the pedestrians asking when they're gonna open because they're really not doing good out there <laughs> right. like i just keep mm-hmm. i can't stop like imagining like this scenario apocalypse scenario where the entire world is dead and there's only like 13 million people left and maybe they're all just like in the Manhattan area. Mm-hmm. And maybe his play production has just like become the entirety of civilization. Like people are trying to get, that's why it's expanded so much over the years. Cause it's just absorbed the rest of yeah. civilization. I like that. That's kind of where my mind goes. Yeah. 
that helps explain like why that guy wants to get in and why that's right. better than being outside because better than being the, in Funland. That's the, for sure. the first time you talked about it, it just seemed like they wanted to get in to spectate this play to like get away from like the police state that was outside but if uh-huh. like if the concept is actually like if you can get inside Caden's play that that's just like a a different existence in life for that, you that you'll be sheltered from the harsh realities of this new apocalypse in the same way that Caden hardly ever gives any thought to life outside he can barely think outside of his own immediate personal relationships he can't go any further than that as far as his like sphere of influence yeah. of caring uh what do we make of the burning house <laughs> I took it just a little more literally. I mean, I just took what, like, the conversation with the realtor about, like, the whole theme of, like, mortality and death. All the decisions that you make. Like, sometimes it feels like decisions you make in life are uncorrelated from the fact that you are going to die later in life. Mm-hmm. But I, I, where did I see this recently? But, like, somebody made this point and something I watched and listened to when they're like, oh, like, if I buy a truck, like, I'm completely aware that this may be like either the last truck or the second and the last truck that i have before i die and just like if you start thinking about mortality with respects to like day-to-day life they just take on this completely different flavor of valency and so all of that just comes to head at the burning house like it is the literal embodiment of mortality in day-to-day uh living mm-hmm. it is death staring at you in the face like when you make any decision like you must understand like that is the decision that you're making for the rest of your life yeah in the office when michael buys his condo dwight says when you're buying this condo you're basically buying a coffin and i just think michael should have bought a coffin with thicker walls so he doesn't hear all of the dead people yeah yes uh, yeah, on a similar tack to that, Raul, I think uh, I think it does sort of, for me, it's like, uh, it's about the inevitability of these certain, because she dies because of the house, right? And it's almost yeah, like... it all worked how, out the way she expected. Right. I, she's like, I'm afraid I'll die in this house, you know, from the fire. And then it's, it's played for a laugh, but, you know, the EMT guy's like... I think it's smoke inhalation, you know, and of course it is. (laughs) She lives in a burning house. So it feels like this inevitability of these choices we make. We know that eventually we're Mm going to die, but we, we take them anyway because that's life and we need somewhere to live. And it's the embodiment of, of the ending is built into the beginning, which I think they say a couple of times throughout the movie. I forget who says it, but that's like part of it. Yeah. That, that to me just means the same thing we've been saying about death, about how it's built into life. It's sort of like this concept of like true and false. Like you can't have true without necessarily implying the existence of something called false. They're complementary concepts. And so to have life is to have death. And that's inevitable and that's like set in stone from the beginning. So it just, again, plays into all the death stuff. I need to watch, like, like shitty movies or, like, sitcoms for, like, a week now. Because I've just, like, I'm depressed now. Well, he wrote some sitcoms that you could watch, too. I'm sure they're probably lighter fare. I probably won't. I probably will watch sitcoms made by another person. 
<laughs> do you guys want to talk about I'm thinking of ending things? I do. I do. I would like to I do. as well. I like uh, the writer in me really appreciates the simple double entendre of I'm thinking of ending things, the title. What did you think when you heard the title? I thought it was about suicide initially. So I, I remember hearing the title just about the book because it was a highly acclaimed book. But when I first heard it, yeah, of course, like suicide is the first thing you think of. And I think that's probably, right. that's what you would, I mean, even at the beginning of the movie, when she's saying, I'm thinking of ending things, I couldn't tell if it was an intentional sort of ambiguity. Like, is she talking about ending it with him or is she talking about, you know, ending her life? But also like just ending things. Like I'm, I am thinking of things that are ending, uh, I think is also, what? that's what the movie is. What do you think of when you hear I'm thinking of ending things? Is that a reference to a romantic relationship or a suicide? When I first heard the title, it was suicide. It's because I guess there's no context of the relationship when you hear the title. So that's what I thought, too. Mm -hmm. But then the movie opens up and pretty clearly establishes that it's talking about a relationship. But the language they use was still a little too extreme and like on the nose to not be talking about self-harm. Yeah. So I I thought I was I I thought I was incorrect, but then I thought that I was, it was probably going to end up in that area was something I was holding in the back of my mind. Yeah, I I don't think there's any like any way around it. I think that that language clearly like elicits suicidal, like suicidal thoughts. Not, but like when I was watching, right. like the, <laughs> the intro title doesn't elicit suicidal. <laughs> Makes you think it's suicide. You're gonna be like uh, cited in like a conservative like newsletter. It's like this movie <laughs> uh, evokes suicidal thoughts. Trevor Maury. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I thought that too. But I thought that when I was the the one of the opening dialogue pieces of her describing at first when she's thinking of ending things sounds very much like it's talking about suicide full stop that is what it sounds like it doesn't sound like a relationship thing at all really until the, the end of the movie again it actually successfully threw me off the mark and so for a moment there it did actually kind of trick me into thinking it was not about suicide you uh started to ask a question as i was leaving about like when did you realize or figure out something yeah, yeah. How did it go for you? Like, when? What were you thinking while you were watching the movie? As far as what was going on, they were flashing that old guy early on. So, what did you think of the old guy? I feel like that was pretty clear that there was some sort of like time shift thing happening where maybe the janitor is in the far future or in the f- the distant past or that right, right. Especially when they start talking about like age, that like starts to crystallize for me as like okay like the janitor is somehow like jake in like a different form like maybe he's immortal or this is like a different dimension or it's his mind all those things apply so i felt like pretty like early on i kind of caught on to this the janitor is jake thing i was in that area but i i could i couldn't quite put it together at first i thought dad but then when we saw the dad it wasn't him so i'm like could be related to Jake, but I was sufficiently on my toes that I couldn't. I wasn't sitting back oh. and saying like, "Oh, that's oh, his, here, that's him here you in go. the future." Here, I got exactly like the the line that gave it away for me. It was um because it's in the early scenes when they're still in the car on the way to the parents' house. He's uh-huh. talking about Oklahoma, the musical, 
he's like, I see, you know, I see students who have been in other productions throughout the years, like throughout the years or something. And I see them right, like at, right. at stores yeah. in town now. Yeah. And I'm like, that guy is the janitor, like a hundred percent. Right. Like right. that's, that's what like solidified it for me. That's yeah, where I yeah, got it too. And I, I like that it's so early in the movie because mm-hmm. it really, it, it makes you question very early on uh, everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. I think also the he, they really don't waste time uh, because there's that, and then there's also the like I think within like five minutes, her uh, what she's studying in school seems to change, um, and I don't remember the details of it, but it's like, she's like it's so it's different enough to to really throw you off. Well, it's I like, picked that up right away because she's like a biologist person at the beginning, and then she says that, and then he introduces her as a physicist. Yeah, I'm like, get the fuck out of here. That's not physics. Oh, okay. And then it changed again. But even in the, co- I mean, like, I'm, okay. I don't remember what it was exactly. It was like, I think veter, uh, veterinary, because she was talking about rabies. She was, she was writing about a some paper kind of about fungal rabies. brain infection. Yeah, and then and then like the next thing was a different like sort of science. Like it was it was different yeah. enough to be clear that there was like something funky going on there. I guess the right. the science stuff like all passed over my head because i did notice like the shift between like some high level science and like a poet but that was enough for me to be like oh maybe she's just like a a double major of something right it's not uncommon to be high level scientist and be like well written uh but like i i guess i just missed the whole like different disciplines of science changing and it happened alongside with her name not being quite consistent we talked about um sort of like dream logic and dream sequences previously on lynch's film i feel like this movie did like a really good job of that too especially yeah. when we learn her name and then she like gets a phone call and that same name is on the phone yeah dude and i'm like, like why is she getting a oh phone call God. from her this- name this like fucked with me like in like real time like the same thing I, I i was saying earlier about how like when they first show the dad and he has gray hair and then he has colored hair um i was like oh i must be misremembering things like this movie did that to me like in multiple ways like the names like someone would say like the name is like my name is lucy and then i would read yeah. the lucy thing lucy, on the phone yeah. And I thought that, like, okay, I'm just, I'm misremembering everything I'm hearing. Yep. Like, it's not yeah, the movie fucking, it's not the movie fucking with me. Like, I'm, I'm doing something wrong here. Yeah. What a difficult thing to pull off, like, technically speaking. It's so trippy, like, in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Like, in the moment, like, it, it had no effect on me for obvious reasons. But, like, now I'm like, oh, my God, like, it really messed with me in a way that i couldn't even perceive i was thinking about this with synecdoche he is good at this is a different kind of dream logic that is is different from lynch's but it's also adept and it's like it's like when you're trying to describe a dream so say trevor was in my dream and i'm and i'm trying to describe it to him and i'm saying like i'm describing mundane things but to me, it's like they were very weird. And I'm like, you, I just, I can't really describe what was so weird about this dream, but take mm-hmm. my word for it. Like, it just felt weird. And I think he's really good at, like, having those moments of unreality where you can't put your finger on what's different about it or there's just too many little things to yeah. really describe, you know? But it's yeah. just all, it all adds up to being off, you know? It's yeah. like a broken equation. 
I think for me, like one of the the things that vibes the most with what you're saying is like the amount of time that it takes the parents to come downstairs. <laughs> That's when because, it really started switching yeah. gears, right? Well, it's just it's like it's not addressed in any sort of way where it's like, man, they're really taking a long time up there, you know? Like no character says that or acknowledges that. It's just that like it takes a long time like on screen yeah. like an un like a very unnatural amount of time so you feel weird as as the viewer like am i like is time passing like the way that i think it is like what like why don't we hear them but they eventually come downstairs and everything is normal right it's not like they mm -hmm. discovered that they were dead upstairs or right right it's just this weird like gap in time that's unexplainably long i think yeah. that was one of the first like big laugh lines for me in that movie so if I remember correctly, this is how it was directed, where he, they're in the house, and he, he, like, calls for the family, or the parents. He's like, mom, dad, mom, dad, and the camera, like, pans, I think, 360, and there's silence, like, they're not answering. And it goes on for a long time, 30, 45 seconds. It it's, it's a slow Th pan, and then it eventually arrives back at the staircase, and you hear them faintly go, we're coming. <laughs> And yeah. he goes, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's over in a second. And it's just this odd timing, but it's yeah. funny. It's very funny. And also super unsettling. Yeah. Those are like so creepy. heavily, heavily engineered sequence of events that are meant to make you feel uneasy. Cause at that point we've been tipped off that this is starting to get weird. Mm -hmm. The figure in the window. The figure in the window and a lot of the stuff before that is just giving you an idea that like this may be heading in a direction that's going to start to get weird. Yeah. And then the parents not showing up when you think they would just like yeah. really gets you to the edge of where you're just like about to freak out. It's so scary. But then they come and, and, it, and it eases you back down. Yeah. The trailer definitely makes it seem like a huge thriller horror movie. And the fact that Tony Collette's cast in it, I think, like adds to that anxiety for me. Especially like her in like that window. There's something like visually that like ties that to hereditary for me. Like her like weird silhouette like in the distance in a dark house, right. you know? With the waving hand. I don't I don't like that at all. Yeah. You saw Hereditary, right, Raul? No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh really? No. Ooh. You should go watch that. Let's put it on the list. Do a horror movie. Oh, dude, I'm I'm playing the movie right now. Dude, that fucking dog from yeah, I'm Thinking man. of Ending Things. So the good. only time he's on screen is like shaking. Like you never yeah. see him still, I don't think. Yeah. That is so unsettling. Yeah, I think you oh, see him like run fuck. up. I just saw a car uh, drive by while I was thinking of that. Reminds me of the dog from The Thing. The Husky. Uh -huh that explodes into a monster that's what that's what that made me think of <laughs> it's it's another like weird like timing thing where yeah you yeah. you in your mind have seen a dog do that you've seen a dog like uh dry itself off um, right and so you have this kind of like pre-programmed like sense for how long that should take that you're not even aware of and so when it starts to like move past that it just gets really unsettlingly weird. That's that's exactly it. He's doing mm -hmm. the same trick with time a couple of times throughout. I don't know. There's something about that sound too, like the mm -hmm. 
the the, the this, to me uh, it's his his head is rotating so fast that you kind of get that like effect of like if a tire is moving too fast you just like see it all as one thing mm-hmm. or his like face turns into this face that has like multiple sets of eyes <laughs> and it it really does look terrifying there's a term for this in uh animation it's called a uh, smearing uh-huh it's when you're trying to draw motion blur so like motion blur like you can't draw it like it has no right. form it's just like a blurred version of the thing so you actually draw like these weird like multiple eyed like morphed things like if a character is like shaking its head it becomes this like six eyed thing between like a few frames like when you draw uh-huh. that and so there are these i think i follow this instagram account account called psychedelic simpsons oh yeah and like some of it is just that it's just like the smear frames from certain uh, from i've had certain many episodes. smear frame simpsons as my lock screen it's uh <laughs> it's good i was gonna say something else about the dog though oh yeah it's like a really cool camera trick i think too or editing trick because it's so seamless like this like you see it on screen like the dog like wagging too much and usually if you have a looped piece of footage like you can see it like you can see the seams Uh uh-huh so it's really impressive that they were able to make it look like this dog was like perpetually like drawing itself off Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 they did something i would have guessed that but yeah you think it's pretty clear that they did some editing there to make it seem longer they well, I mean, there's there's no way that you something. could film a dog doing that. Like the right, dog just right. wouldn't do that. It feels like you're looking at a looped. Could you imagine like looking at looped video only exists on screens, right? In mm-hmm. the world of screens, the ontology of that. Imagine seeing something looped in real life. That would trip you the fuck out. There's a uh, there's an old like Onion post I remember that was like. It was like, we at the Onion office don't know how to make GIFs or boomerangs. It's like when boomerangs <laughs> came out. You know what a boomerang is? No. It's like a GIF, but it's just like reverses itself, and then it oh, okay. plays again. And they were like, we don't know how to make a boomerang, so here's like one of our interns just opening his mouth 50 times in a row. <laughs> and he was like, he like, <laughs> just like did that for like several minutes. It's like a really, no. like an actually filmed thing. Oh my god. I've got another thing that pairs well with my more cosmic theory about this movie. Yeah, yeah, that this I, existed somewhere, another dimension, another yeah. world or something. And so like um I had this theory that especially th- this is like what supported this for me is several characters like kind of express to the uh the main character, the young woman that they kind of act like they're being held captive in some way like they're hostages within their own reality and so that more solidified this idea that this was like a real place where like real things could exist against against their will and so like that first happens with like his mom his mom says something about like it's when it's just her and the young woman alone together and it's Like, the mom is in, like, a younger state of herself. She's, like, in the 50s dress version. And she tells her to, like, go to the basement. And the young woman's like, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that Jake wants me down there. And she says something like, break the rules or something. Like, do something that's not, like, playing by his rules or something. So that made me think, like, he's this, 
like god character that for some reason his power stops at the basement door for some reason uh-huh and then same thing when you uh see the the girls who work at tulsi town and like one of them is like you don't have to go forward like you can stay here like you don't have to go forward in time so i don't know what do you what do you guys make of of that stuff so that that helped support this idea of mine that it's this prison like time prison that he's created like in yeah. his own mind or or cosmically or something but i don't have to a say better that explanation a, for those scenes yeah to say that it's as simple as his mental construction would it's kind of like when we were talking about Mulholland drive about how like we didn't want it to just be the the dreams of a, of a napping girl mm-hmm. th- there's more to bite into than just that explanation i think you get that from this as well but as far as how I think about the scenes, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's, I don't think it's as compelling. But I also don't know what to make of the Tulsi Town scene. Other than that, in I love any, it. In, I love it just too. Just the idea of picking up ice cream. <laughs> right, in a blizzard. And there's just three young ladies there. And one of them seems to be held captive to some degree. Mm-hmm. They're there earlier. I just picked it up like in the first 10 minutes of the movie when I was rewatching it. They're, they're in a high school. They're in the school, right? Yeah, they're the ones making fun of them yeah. around their locker, oh. kind of giggling. Yeah, I th- so it's, I think I realized that gotcha. pretty early on. That helped explain to me like why they were there, because they yeah, were. That like, was a this- very. That makes sense. That's when it started to get like pretty abstract for me. That's the first time that Jake kind of shied away from being in the scene. Like yeah. he's like, "Oh no, they won't talk to me," and he kind of like very weirdly just turned his back to the whole thing and just let the young woman kind of take lead of that situation and that's when i was like man this is getting really weird like that's more unsettling to me than the whole dinner scene mm-hmm. is when this guy started like stepping back well i was re-watching a part of it and it another explanation i guess is that all of these like characters that seem to be able to communicate in a halfway intelligent way are just different versions of jake manifesting so like the younger girl uh says something about like they're mean but like maybe they're mean because they're as equally troubled as me like maybe them being pretty makes life harder for them the younger girl starts to sort of rationalize and justify like why these two girls are so mean and distant because they obviously represent they obviously that's a part of him yeah, I trying I, to make I, those arguments to himself. Yeah, yeah. A man that—that's like him trying to talk himself out of suicide. He's like, I've had a really hard life, but maybe all these people that I've been observing from afar and envying also have equally hard lives. So for me, it's like these, like the characters and like every part seem to represent a a very simplistic part of himself here's here's to take that theory one step further the reason that the uh the main redhead character uh switches all the time is because he himself like is not consistent in his like motivations i think that in real life jake is like someone who was like an intellectual or like a scientist of some kind who is like like failed or like just didn't get far enough in his field or like 
just never never made it to that level but was like a smart guy and so the redhead is like a uh, an exploration of like every possible avenue that was in front of him and like the ideal version of that like he literally calls her ideal an idealized woman yeah yeah and so for me it's it's like hit every every version of like his fantasy manifested in one character that just she is his multiverse yeah man this movie's so sad like when i found out like the reality at the end about like him being this guy who had no life but had so much like aspirations in life and mm-hmm. like had this life that he really wanted that didn't happen just hit hard mm-hmm. poor guy i was gonna say something else oh is tulsi town like on purpose a real no it's not real is it on purpose like kind of a, a fusion of like several like fast food characters it's kind of like Wendy's meets Burger King. Like the mascot is this like red-headed freckled woman that wears a crown. Yeah, I think so. I think it's supposed to be some like known quantity in this universe because when she sees it, she she like recognizes it, you know. Can you guys mm-hmm. think of any example of to me it seems like a chain that is very beloved but also very local. Right. And the only <laughs> thing I can think of is like in and out which is like a very Southern California brand, even though it's in a lot of places now. It's like mm-hmm. maybe if you roll back 20 years, it would be like the kind of thing that you you would tout as like something your region has. I think uh, when I went to, I went to high school in Manhattan, Kansas for a few years, and they have a place there called Vista Burger. And I think there's a Vista Burger in like, I don't know, six or seven other Kansas towns. But that's mm-hmm. it. You know, and so Vista Burger wow. is a thing, and it's a big thing to them, but no one else knows what Vista Burger is outside of 60,000 people. Are, are they Smash Burgers? Is that their thing? I think they are, but I'll, I, I couldn't tell you for sure. It's been, you know, 15 years. I got caught up in kind of this, like, f- fast food thing that I was projecting onto this movie, like some sort of, like, corporate... Like, it, it's representative of, like, real corporate chains because... The first time we see the redheaded woman is like outside her apartment, like in the snow. And the first, uh-huh. the first thing I said to Grace, I was like, "Why is she dressed like Ronald McDonald?" <laughs> because she has like uh, uh, this very like red, like very red, contrasting with the snow outfit, and like yellow gloves, like bright yeah. yellow gloves. And I'm like, what the fuck kind of outfit is that if you're not <laughs> Ronald McDonald? And so, like, I saw that. And then when I saw, like, okay, there's this restaurant called Tulsi Town where it's, like, kind of Wendy's-esque mascot. And you could say that the main character kind of looks like a Wendy's-esque mascot. <laughs> and so I'm like, something is, like, happening here with, like, known, like, fast food imagery that I just can't, I can't put yeah. together. One more thing. I actually have a couple more things, but the first thing is... um, One more thing. What do you guys make of when, you know, they have, to, they have to stop at the high school and then, like, he goes inside? I guess question number one is, like, what does the high school represent? But a more interesting question is, like, the shot of when she discovers, like, the wheelbarrow, like, full of used Tulsi Town cups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, like... 
that seems to imply that like he's done this exact charade like yeah you know what that uh, makes me think of many times but i don't understand what that means like is like it why makes would me that think happen? that he's is he's thought about killing himself many times before mm, okay that's the only thing i can think of because the whole thing about her as far as i see it is that she's his way of coming to terms with that decision and sort of when i i think there's only one character it's just like jake but it's kind of like in this kaufman-esque way of splintering a character into different actors uh she is a part of him that's deciding that or not it's you know i'm thinking of ending things and that debate so i still think that like she's the main character but just that she is him she doesn't have any inner life of herself that's why she can never remember any past memories like right in the beginning she's like i can't remember the last road trip i'm thinking i took and it's nothing's coming to mind my memory's been very blurry Mm -hmm. recently and so she is just him it's a part of his psyche yeah yeah that conflicts with my like cosmic prison idea i think because it in which case like jake jake is like somehow like in control of like the world that they live in you know oh right oh so so i remember a little more why i said that the reason i you know i think that works a little more is because like in the scene when they get to tulsi town and he kind of stepped back steps back and stops being present anymore is him kind of just there's only one person you know one soul split among these different characters so at that moment he was kind of putting all of the autonomy into the young woman and kind of stepping aside from his younger version of himself yeah it, it's interesting like maybe uh like blonde todd jake is like the version of his psyche that's in the driver's seat uh most of the time where he's this simple more kind of blue collar-esque guy he's the one kind of like driving the janitor at the end of the day uh-huh. uh, but there's still like the the redhead deep inside him who like has all of those very like redeeming like intellectual like hopeful qualities but she just like isn't that's not like the main form of his consciousness sometimes they share things that they say sometimes like the same phrases come out of both the like blonde actor and the redhead actor sometimes he like gets confused as to like who is who sometimes it's that line i was trying to remember earlier but like another instance of that is like early on when he says that like um she uses the word sissy and then he kind of goes into like woke mode and says like well that's pretty derogatory and you shouldn't say that you know chiding her and mm-hmm. later on she does the same thing to him on that christmas song and that's just to say that like that's something that they both do to each other it's obviously coming from the same person but I'm not sure. It doesn't seem like a man, like a 60-year-old man from Oklahoma would be having those thoughts. <laughs> so it seems like that's something that he would put on to this uh, redheaded fantasy. But then it's words that come through his mouth and it's words that come through her mouth. I'm not sure what's happening there. Yeah, I think I, I remember at the very beginning of the movie uh, when they were in the car thinking that the mechanic that was going on was whenever she speaks in her head she's saying that out loud and she doesn't realize it because there's moments where he seems to react to something that her narration says. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and of course that makes more sense now if they're 
one and the same. But I remember thinking like that was the direction they were headed was for some reason she she can't, you know, interiorize to coin a word what she's saying. <laughs> internalize maybe? Yeah, internalize. Thanks. It's not like <laughs> I'm a we're probably writer. gonna stick with interiorize. <laughs> Interiorize. Interiorize. <laughs> okay, one, one more question. How, How many people good? do you think have the red Satan back tattoo because of of that movie? I'm going to go get it. Non-zero, right? Some people have it. It's just full back. It's so big. <laughs> Everybody's tattooed. <laughs> well, I've never seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> I think the movies share a lot of the same themes, you know, on a very surface level. There, there are two movies that talk about similar ideas. You know, they're both about, you know, these old men that are grappling with their lives. They've had very different lives, but I think, like, ultimately they, they, they are both people that look at their past with a lot of regret. And, you know, in particular, this... The very specific idea of fantasizing about somebody, you know, far in the past and what could have been is shared in both movies. In both movies with redheads, right? He's like with Hazel. He's like, if only I would have been just a little bit more aggressive mm-hmm. and forward when you first showed interest. This in this these last 30 years would have been completely different. And then the guy, Jake, you know, thinking that he could have made things happen. It's the same idea. On a much more like basic level, I like connected the dots between this character and Hazel from Synecdoche because they both just seem like idealized, interesting people from the perspective of like yeah. the, for lack of a better term, like underperforming like beta male. <laughs> yeah, you know, they seem just... like the answer to all your problems in both cases. Yeah. Right, which is uh, beta male, which is also who Clementine is in. Eternal Sunshine is she's she plays that role for Jim Carrey. That's right. Jim Carrey's ah. character too. Yeah, that's totally right. What other characters are like this? What's her face from uh, Scott Pilgrim? Yeah, mm-hmm. like too Ramona. too cool for school girl. Well, they, yeah, I mean, manic pixie dream girl is the what the trope is called. Oh. manic it's pixie the, dream girl. Yeah, and it's the it's the dream girl that comes in and saves the sort of schlubby. Um, flailing male protagonist (laughs) love it but yeah so i mean what do you guys think i mean here are two movies from from kaufman's mind you know completely from his own mind writing and directing and everything so if you had to give a whack at it of kind of just what this guy is trying to do what do you what would you think that would be well my i think this is colored also by the interviews that I've watched with Charlie Kaufman and just like adaptation as his own like self-critique that I feel like both of these movies are like a direct reflection about Charlie Kaufman's like real life anxieties and it's this like insecurity of not being good enough or have done enough and how like death is like hurtling at you at, at light speed and so it, it makes me just kind of think that charlie kaufman is like severely like self-critical depressed guy and that his like outlet are is screenwriting you should be a critic dude it's like i think this guy has emotional issues and i don't see why he thinks that we should be the ones to work it out for him so, <laughs> goodbye so that's my that's my best 
like surface level take on it if i had to like mm-hmm. tie it all together in a bow yeah yeah i think i would say that um charlie kaufman is a writer so he lives inside of his own head more than most people do for their profession and so he's constantly battling these whatever you want to call them right these neuroses these demons um, and he's examining them and he's over and over again sort of reflecting on his own failings because we all have failings so i think he's probably uniquely positioned to examine this territory and um he also happens to be very good at it so i'm sure his next movie will be exactly the same (laughs) raul me okay well i think that uh charlie and we are on a first name basis it, it like really takes to to heart the idea that like art should be something that like really touches you on an emotional level. Like he is very obviously trying to elicit emotional responses from his movies in a very human in a way that that it that can't be like appreciated sort of on a film watching way. Like he wants something that that really like transcends the movie you're watching and makes you think and makes you uh sad more often than not <laughs> laugh occasionally sorry yeah. to interject i just want to say that like i just wish there was like a happy like charlie kaufman that existed like an all yeah like an anti kaufman that was the same style and auteurship but just more optimistic <laughs> yes yeah i would like that all his movies that i know of i need to finish off i need to watch some of the other ones that he's like written on i think adaptation and probably a few others I haven't seen. I so think I adaptation is probably one that ends like the most optimistically. And it's funny that it's the one that has himself as the main character. So I don't know. Hmm. Maybe he has a brighter outlook than we give him credit for. You know, maybe he just thinks it's important to like hit these really somber notes. Like he thinks that's an area that's like worth dwelling on. To me, it feels like he he thinks that like the depressive sides of reality are like the most real things that exist. So like the further you s- search for truth, like the more depressed you get. Yeah. Like that's blissful like my... ignorance is like something to be avoided. You know, mm-hmm. you, you feel that like maybe he would agree with that. Like that character and the actor that plays Hazel, the British one that is nothing uh-huh. like her. And yeah. he's like, like you, you understand loneliness and she's like, I don't know. I feel fine most of the time. Right. I guess I get lonely sometimes. Maybe you'll feel better if you have sex with me. <laughs> he says he wishes he was pretty like her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like ultimately, like all the protagonists, I mean, they're all tragic heroes. Not heroes, but just, you know, they're tragic protagonists. All that introspection doesn't seem to do anybody any good in his movies. So I don't know what to take away from that. Actually, yeah, I think he's. I think he kind of views uh, this like introspection as Prometheus's fire. Like we, sh- yeah. it's just like not something that we should have ever brought down. Because I feel like he. Um, that is how adaptation ends. Is who wins? It's the dumb brother who played by the rules and was just easygoing and didn't think too hard. And that's like the that's like the winning story in the movie. And I feel like everything, every all of his other movies, like the the tragedy and the decline of his characters is a result of just their own their like inability to not live inside their own heads. Yeah. 
Jake has that good line about like why he likes road trips because it like reminds you that the world is bigger than the inside of your own head. Yeah. And that's yeah. Just all these all these lines and all these scenes just give you like a picture of a person that I think is like pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm certainly appreciative that this guy is making movies because I, I like looking at them. I got, I forgot to say one thing about Syndicate. One scene that I really liked was when the actor is walking down the street and he's like, <laughs> people don't walk like that. He's like, yeah. oh, how about this? Yeah. And it's so funny. It's like he's just trying to direct people into acting like normal people. But yeah. in that process, it's kind of just like... He had... That character had like the first like LOL joke in the movie. What was it's, it? He like crashes the car into the wall like during rehearsal. Right, right. And he's like, I was trying something new that time. I was crashing differently. And apprehensively? And ambivalently. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Uh... <laughs> That's I love the very next line where where he gives him the direction, like, just remember you're a young actor, you know, he he gives that line and then the actor's he's like, like, like so, so just remember <laughs> yeah, that just does, we, like, the audience oh. know that you are a young actor and that you yourself will eventually be at this position of uh, <laughs> grief and vulnerability. The, act- the actor's like, he like, he, tr- he tries acting that out. <laughs> it's so funny. That, that's it right. reminds me of the, of the Mulholland Drive director who said that really like weird cryptic thing oh, yeah. to Naomi Watts. And then yeah. there was just like a moment of like silence in the room. When they're like, what? It's, it's not real until it's real. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for that reason, I'll give this movie. Edit out the silence. There's literal crickets coming from my window if you can't hear it. Burning houses, green poop. Uh, somebody else go. <laughs> All right, uh, this one I I think is great because it checks like all of the Coffin movies. Like you can get it in each one. I'm gonna give this movie nine point five uh, childhood beds out of ten. The like saddest that. thing imaginable: a childhood bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot to rate the movie when I was giving my final summation, but I'll say that uh, this movie gets a seven on the Bristol stool chart. <laughs> I got one. I will give this movie. This is honestly, it's a pretty difficult movie to watch, but I, I think it's a movie. If you pay a lot of attention to, you can get a lot of, a lot of out of it. But yeah, I remember the first time watching this, that so much of this just flew over my head. I was definitely in the mode. Like if you don't pay the most astute of attention at everything that's happening mm-hmm. very quickly, the movie kind of like lifts off the ground of reality and becomes a surrealist uh, fever dream. And mm-hmm. because I didn't pay great attention to it, that's just immediately what it became. And I lost a hold of the metaphors. For all the reasons I just stated, I'll give this movie 8.3 peep shows out of 10. Okay. Remember the peep show with his daughter? Remember the conversation yeah. we had last time about <laughs> Amelie about peep shows, Trevor? Yeah. Yeah. There's another peep show in this one. Thanks for listening this week. Our music is by W. Look him up at underscore W on Instagram. That's underscore the word double in two us. Use. Edit this week done by Trevor Mowry. Yeah, it's going to be a long one. Holy shit. Four hours. (laughs) 
wherever you're listening, give us a good rating. <laughs> I'm keeping the holy shit four hours in there. Connect with us at, at @filmholepod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again. See you next week. Special thanks to Grace Fawcett, Brady Goodman, Kartik Bamadipati, Chris Maddy, Savannah Smith, Justin Wheatley, Stacy Kim, and Brock Obama. All right. You didn't even acknowledge that you yourself are Justin Wheatley. <laughs> Who even is Justin Wheatley? I mean, Justin Wheatley could have been a young woman that I met 30 years ago in a bar, for all we know. <laughs> <laughs>